Last year you released an album with rock and roll standards, but only for the Soviet Union. Why? Um, it was like a gesture to Russia, because normally records are released first in America and England and Europe, and then Russia gets them last. And because Gorbachev and Reagan were talking about glasnost and were talking about arms reduction, I think a lot of us in Europe were very happy to hear this. So I had the opportunity to release this record. So I wrote a, a, a little note on the record saying this is the peace gesture, it's the hand of friendship from the West to the East. And um, I just felt it might just help a bit of glasnost. It's my little bit of glasnost. Why did you choose rock and roll standards for that album? Well, the album kind of chose itself. I made the album first, and um, I wasn't sure what to do with it. Uh, I wasn't too keen to release it uh, in the West because I knew it would get comparisons with John Lennon's rock and roll album, and I didn't want to compete. So I was wondering, I couldn't think of anything to do with it. And then we, we were eventually going to do a crazy idea of pretending it was a Russian bootleg But we thought that was a bit mad. So eventually it worked around to... Um, the opportunity came to release it actually on Melodia, which is the only record label in Russia. And uh, so they put it out in the two shops. Will it ever be released in the Western world? Well, what's happened over here is uh, it's being imported from Russia, which is interesting, which is one of the reasons I like the idea. Imagine Americans importing Russian records. <laughs> Um, so I thought that was kind of ironic, that was nice. But um, the people who have it in the West are the fan club people in our fan club. They all got it for nothing. They got it free. And I think if there's a lot of interest in it, um, I think maybe we'll make a limited edition or something, if, if people want it. I don't know if people want it. I guess they do. <laughs> you want it? Well, I do want it, yeah. Well, I said <laughs> Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, 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 and hi, 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 everyone. Welcome, one and all, to another episode of Paul or nothing. Remember, this is widescreen podcasting and the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles. Thank you all for listening. I hope you're all well, safe and sound. Today on the podcast, we're going to be continuing our collaboration with the Glass Onion on John Lennon podcast, where me and the wonderful host, Anthony Rattuno, have been examining, comparing and contrasting the two rock and roll albums put out by the Lennon and McCartney writing duo. As before, we've been doing these as swapcasts, where we've been appearing on each other's live feed, as well as swapping hosting duties to keep things fresh. I hosted the first of these two episodes, which was about Lennon's 1975 album Rock and Roll, which technically was a Glass Onion episode, and likewise, Anthony will be kindly hosting this episode, technically a Paul or Nothing one, where we're going to be discussing McCartney's own 1988 rock covers album, the hotly anticipated, at least as far as this listener base is concerned, Snover VCCR, Chobber BCCP, Back in the USSR, or The Russian Album. Like I said, this is a swap cast, meaning it's going to appear on both of our individual podcast feeds, uh, eventually on Anthony's a little later on. And yes, you will have to listen to both episodes to get the full picture, as there will be unique audio and intros featured on both. We're going to talk about the album, 
the songs, and maybe a little sprinkling of communism also. Who knows? But yeah, it's pretty much the exact same as last time, really. And if you haven't listened to our rock and roll episode, I suggest you go and check that out first, as we're going to refer to it quite a lot in this. And also check out our Toot and a Snore in 74 episode also. As always, I had an absolutely fab time doing this episode with Anthony. It was very strange talking about a Paul McCartney album and not being the host, though I did manage to sit quietly and allow Anthony to introduce all of the songs and not interrupt him, right up until the last number where I do steal that privilege away from him. But that was only because we were talking about it in the context of the last song, or at least that's how I'm justifying it. But yeah, as you will listen to this, folks, you will clearly hear me with my finger on my lips at points. Also, just saying right now, be sure to check out the timestamps in the comments for this episode, as there's going to be a pretty lengthy housekeeping segment, as well as a little bonus section that won't be appearing on Anthony's feed, as I knew it was never going to be of any interest to him whatsoever, so I did cut it out of my live notes. It's going to be me talking about the various copies and pressings of Chobber in frankly, far too much detail. Anyway, speaking of which, let's cut right to the... Housekeeping! Let's start off with some news, and first of all, the editor for McCartney's new book of lyrics slash his kind of autobiography thing has been announced, and according to his publishers, it's going to be renowned university professor Paul Muldoon. Muldoon is not the gamekeeper from Jurassic Park, sadly, but instead he's an Irish poet and Pulitzer Prize winner and serves as professor in humanities and serves as a professor in humanities and creative writing. This news actually comes only just a week after McCartney himself actually appeared as a surprise guest in one of Muldoon's songwriting classes. A massive honour, I am sure. Muldoon himself describes the book as as close to an autobiography we may ever come, adding that McCartney's insights into his own artistic process confirm a notion at which we had but guessed, that McCartney is a major literary figure who draws upon and extends the long tradition of poetry in English. Folks, I think I'm actually going to have to read a book as soon as it comes out and actually finish it, aren't I? Damn, it does sound good, doesn't it? And once again, on the morning of recording, we've got something else to add to the news with the release of a making of behind the scenes video for Paul's When Winter Comes, uh, the, the, the music video. Make sure you go and check it out though, as it's a really, really sweet little look behind the curtain and insight into art and animation. Of course, we get some time with regular McCartney collaborator Jeff Dunbar, who we've probably all heard of before, but then there's also a little bit with Nicolette Van Ghent, of whom I was not familiar with, though it turns out she also worked on Tropic Island Hum with Jeff Dunbar and Linda McCartney all those years ago. I mean, everyone, I'm the kind of guy who will watch, you know, 12 plus hours of the Lord of the Rings bonus features just for fun. So whilst I do wish this was longer than just four or so minutes, for what it's worth as a short, sharp bit of content, it really was illuminating. On to our emails today. And to get in contact with the show, please email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. I always want to hear your McCartney stories, your McCartney anecdotes, your McCartney trivia, your factoids if necessary, what got you into him, your, you know, your favourite songs, whatever. I always love reading out correspondence here on the show. And thankfully, we've got some today. 
Uh, our first email today is from Brian of That Is Called Brian. I think we read out one of these either on the last episode or the one before that. And he quickly says, Hi Sam, I have a suggestion for a podcast subject, unless you've done it before. A proposed set list of 20 or so songs for a tour made up of tracks that McCartney has never performed live before or at least since 1979. And his list looks as thus. Goodnight Tonight, Arrow Through Me, Beware My Love, Daytime Nighttime Suffering, Somebody Who Cares, This One, Dominoes, 1985, which I, correct me if I'm wrong, I do believe he has played that quite regularly in tours since 79. Anyway, he then continues with Dear Friend, Wanderlust, I'm Carrying, Some Days, Waterfalls, Souvenir, a song that I'm not familiar with, so I'm looking forward to coming across that one. When Winter Comes, With a Little Luck, Only Love Remains, No More Lonely Nights, Old Siam Sir, Pipes of Peace, and rounding out with I've Had Enough. Regards, Brian. Of course, thank you for that lovely email there, Brian. And the idea of dictating Macca's next set list is something that I have wanted to do for a while now with Tom Hanyardi, as I know he would absolutely crush this kind of thing. Though stocking the set list entirely with songs that he's never played before, or at least for 40 years, is almost too impossibly fanciful to imagine. I th- like, I think Paul's manager and his team could persuade him to cut the amount of recycled classics by, say, half or 60%, but we all know that Paul is ever concerned about the first-timers at his gigs who still haven't seen Hey Jude, so... I might not do the exact idea you've proposed, but don't be surprised if something very similar pops up in the near future. I'll definitely credit you there. Don't worry. Thanks for emailing in, as always, Brian. Our second email today is from a first-timer named Val, though the title of the email says Val and Dave, so I'm going to say a hi to the both of you just in case. Val slash Val and Dave write, Hi, Sam. My name is Val, and as the subject says, I found you by accident. I happened to be reading a biography of Paul and just got to the part where Linda has died. I went on to Google to find out what the last song it was that he wrote for Linda before he died and what do I find? Yourself. I am a totally blind person and have been a Macca fan since the beginning. When reading his biography, I realised what a gentle and wonderful person Linda was. She never failed him and stood by him no matter what, always trying to protect him. I hope he truly appreciates Nancy, as after Linda died, he said, I wish I'd been a better husband. I love your podcasts, and I intend to put them on my iPad. Anyway, I'll say goodbye for now, Val. Again, thank you so much for writing in there, Val. And let me just say that Linda has also been a topic I've been meaning to get around to on this show, as well as finish that bloody blog article I've been writing for a while. Um, So you can expect that soon as well. But yeah, Linda is such a massive part of Paul's life and she hasn't really been represented on this podcast in full yet. And the reason is the same reason I haven't done an entire Beatles podcast on my own yet. And that's because I'm too afraid to do it justice. Maybe I need to get Another Kind of Mind or BC The Beatles or the She Loves You podcast to come and help me out. Who knows? Maybe all three to balance out my obvious alpha male testosterone fueled manner. We'll see. Anyway, Val, Val and Dave, thank you so much. I really hope you're enjoying the show and I hope you enjoy the episodes 
from your iPad. Peace and love. Our next email is from a regular contributor, David Jackson, who says, Hi Sam, for a laugh, why don't you invite a couple of guests in to do their 10 worst Macca songs? Everyone suggests their best lists, but why not do a least favourite list? This, I guarantee, will create a lot of controversy and in some cases cause anger and hysteria. In no particular order, I would nominate the following 10 songs as the worst from Macca. At number 10, Cook of the House. Number 9, Say Say Say. Number 8, Driving Rain. Number 7, Children Children. Technically a Danny Lane song, but we'll let it slide. Number 6, Move of a Busker. Number 5, Freedom. Number 4, However Absurd. Number 3, Motor of Love. Number 2, Ebony and Ivory. And number 1, The Man. You also asked for people to list their favourite Paul albums, so here it goes. A late entry at number five, we have McCartney 3. Number four, Tug of War, but only if Ebony and Ivory and Get It are replaced by Rain Clouds and I'll Give You a Ring. Number three, Wildlife, so underrated. Number two, Chaos and Creation in the Backyard. And number one, Band on the Run. Keep up the great show, David. Of course, Dave. I always appreciate your continual support for this housekeeping segment here on the podcast, so thank you for that. Very brave listing your top 10 worst songs of McCartney. I was actually talking to Ken Michaels about doing like a top 10 and worst 10 uh, episode the other day, and to quote him exactly, I don't think you'll mind this, he said, I should try not to be such a negative Nelly. So whilst for now I might not be making specific episodes about top 10 worst Macca songs, everyone, I would like you all to get involved in this, you know. I don't see why I've got to do all the bloody work here. Please, everyone, email in your worst 10 Macca songs. It doesn't have to be in any particular order. I'd love to see what correlations come up. Like, I don't think I've ever seen... Driving Rain or Move Over Busker or Freedom be listed in people's top 10 worst. So, yeah, send in those to pod at gmail.com. Back to you for a second, though, David. I totally get what you mean about putting rain clouds and I'll give you a ring onto the album, though Ebony and Ivory are still going to be the lead single no matter what happens. I hope you know that. And where is Ram from your top five? See me after class, young man. As always, thank you very much. Our final email is from one of our Patreon patrons, Teresa Breda, who I've removed the uh, first part of this email purely just because it was her asking me why I didn't read her name out on the last episode in the Patreon segment. And I'm so sorry for that. I must have just copied and pasted my list from an older set of data. (laughs) Apologies. Anyway, Teresa reads, Hi, Sam. This literal grey hair, and proud of it, has been enjoying your pod, especially as there are plenty of gaps in my solo McCartney knowledge. Band on the Run was released in the USA the day after my 12th birthday. I got the vinyl that Christmas and I still have it. The corners of the poster inside have tape marks that prove it was hung on my bedroom wall. Mine is still now, actually, though with blue tack. The album is too ingrained in my life for me to be objective about it, Any and every song from it instantly transports me to so many memories and feelings. I don't know why I didn't get a copy of Venus and Mars when it was released. I live in New Orleans and remembered the press coverage of Paul and Linda coming to town and how exciting it was. Listen to what the man said was played on the radio all of the time and I loved it. 
It's too bad other songs from the album didn't get the same airtime, though Venus and Mars Rock Show got some. If they had, I might have hit up my parents for the album sooner. My Carnival, however, got local radio play over subsequent Mardi Gras seasons. It's certainly not the best McCartney song ever, but it too holds many memories for me. Thanks for all the pods, Sam, and don't let the critics get you down. Teresa. What a lovely email there. Thank you so much for that. And don't worry, Teresa, my, I'm, I'm only 28 and my hair's already grow, going grey as well, so I, I totally sympathise with you there. Though, I just want to skip straight to the fact that you talked about My Carnival. I love that song so much. Uh, I, I, I wish it was more highly ranked within the fan base. And I wish Paul had used the Cold Cuts version on the Venus and Mars archive release. But, you know, what are you going to do? I also totally agree with you about Band on the Run. In the sense that for me also, since it was my dad who gave it to me, I too am incapable of being objective about it. You know, I do slag off Jet and let me roll it a bit when I've really got my thinking cap on, but let's face it folks, if I'm not in front of this mic trying to be a snarky millennial, I will gladly just sit with Band on the Run on and shut up and enjoy the entire experience. Again, Teresa, thank you so much for writing in. And thank you for being one of my loyal Patreon patrons. You're a wonderful addition to the family. And there we are, folks. If you want to be like any of those wonderful people there, please email us in at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Follow us on our Twitter page, which is at McCartneyPod. Check out the blog, the sister blog, for all sorts of bonus Paul or Nothing content and articles at paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, the socials, by simply typing in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. If you want to help out the show in a quick way that takes less than 30 seconds, please leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you are using. Maybe give us an old like on the YouTube page as well. And finally, consider becoming like Teresa. Please consider joining our Patreon family. Patreon, as I'm sure you know by now, is a service where you, the public, can support independent content creators such as myself by throwing a few dollars at my face down the internet every month. Of course, I make Paul or nothing whilst working a full-time job, and I will never put ads on the show to make revenue that way. So if you want the show to grow, if you want to help keep the lights running, if you want us to buy more product to review or get slightly more exclusive guests on who might require a paycheck, please consider joining our Patreon family. It all goes back into the show every time. And I'm even in talks now with several patrons and Twitter followers as to what I am going to be adding to the Patreon stuff, such as early access to episodes, raw audio versions of the shows, as well as access to all of my notes and scripts as well. So keep an eye out for that. And now that we've gotten all of the plugs out of the way, folks, it's time for me to delay the conversation with Anthony Rotuno once again to add a little extra bit of superfluous, useless detail that hopefully will lay a bit of an additional foundation uh, for said conversation. Anyway, if you are impatient, go and check out the timestamps in the comments below. But anyway, on with the... The many editions of Chobber. So yeah, folks, this is going to be a bit of self-indulgent wankery that I just wanted to throw in because I just find this stuff really fucking interesting. As a collector myself, at the time of recording, I own four unique individual copies of the Russian album, with each one bringing me endless joy in different ways. 
Not only that though, I do indeed have a fifth one on the way. Yes, I do have an addiction. I know, folks. Please help me feed it via the Patreon. Now, just as McCartney 3, the various varied vinyl pressings of Chobber make it unbearably attractive to research and collect, as far as I'm concerned. Discogs.com lists over 70 vinyl versions of this album alone, and they all boast a number of interesting variations, both in terms of the cover, the labels... Uh, in terms of the number of songs and with the sequencing. These were all produced under the Melodia record label over in the USSR, though unlike localised recording industries in certain Western states, the USSR, with its vast swaths of territories, both Russian and vassal ones, meant that it had to split the work amongst many factories over the region. Rather gloriously, this division of labour... Uh, the availability of materials, the lack of dogmatic centralised mandates, and the desire for each factory to use its own unique labelling and printing quirks has led to a goldmine of variants, which has made nerds like me very happy. The first variant of this album is actually the very first copy that I owned that I randomly bought at a vinyl fair for a few quid like 10 years ago, which means I'm very fortunate because there's only about 50,000 of them in circulation. They are distinguished on the front cover by having the small MPL logo in the top right next to the gold star rather than on the bottom, plus a very distinctive and unique rear yellow colour. The plants that produced this album include Leningrad, Riga, Aprilevka, Tashkent, Tbilisi, and the awesomely named Moscow Experimental Recording Plant. The only thing I'm not certain of is whether there are going to be any spelling errors on these various pressings, but on this particular pressing of the album, there is an error on the part of the USSR exclusive liner notes, written by Soviet music journalist Andrei Garlov, and he actually confuses the McCartney cover of Just Because with the John Lennon cover of another song called Just Because, and he thought they were basically the same one, this does make me wonder whether he actually listened to either of those two albums, but I digress. The most noticeable difference isn't actually on the cover, though, as the track listing is missing two of the songs that McCartney wanted to include. This led to a lot of confusion in the USSR and abroad, especially once the subsequent pressings came out with the additional songs. This led an avid fan to write to the Soviet newspaper Sovetskia Kultura, the Soviet culture. This is dated back to the Ju this is dated back to the 15th of July 1988. And in order to answer the reader's question, a representative of Melodia Records at the newspaper actually wrote back to explain the situation. It reads: Reader asks a question, a mystery of two records. I recently bought the record of Paul McCartney's Snova VCCR. After a while, I saw it again in a shop counter and could not resist buying it again. For good reason. It turns out that there are 11 songs on the first record, released September 14th, 1988, and the second one, which was released on January 1st, 1989, carried 13 songs. What a mystery. That's by A. Bogdanov. And in reply, the newspaper wrote, With this request to clarify this mysterious story, we asked the chief director, deputy director of All Union Recording Studio of the Melodia Firm, Ivan Dmitrovich Nesvit, and he wrote back, First of all, I want to say that your reader is lucky. Why? 
you will soon understand for yourself. According to the contract, the licensed disc should have consisted of 13 songs, and a special contract clause stipulated that the artist's desires would be accepted in the design of the sleeve. However, our intermediary provided us with a tape with only 11 songs. The recording fit with the Soviet state standard in terms of running time, and so we began working with it. According to the requirements of the contract, a test record and sleeve were sent to Mr. McCartney. He studied them and made a few remarks. Although Leningrad plant had already started pressing and distributing copies, we could not ignore these remarks. Corrections were therefore made to the design, the initial sleeve notes were replaced, and besides this, they were sent the recordings of two more songs to include. For this reason, the extended record plays longer than the domestic discs. And so, two records with the same title appeared. By the way, the first record, because of its shamefulness appearance and limited edition, became a rare desirable for record collectors, especially abroad since it was only intended for sale in our country. As far as we know, in the USA and Europe, 200 to $215 were paid for this record, so the reader of this newspaper has become the owner of a discophile rarity. Then we come on to the second and most common pressing of this album. These were produced in units exceeding up to 300,000, 500,000 units, and it's probably what you know as the Russian album. All of the following vinyl releases of this album were actually made in a different way, probably due to the notes by McCartney, and sport a much sturdier cardboard sleeve frame, along with having the MPL logo at the front on the bottom right-hand side now. The rear of the cover was now white, with different text and a different layout, and the 13 songs were now present, with the additions of I'm Gonna Be A Wheel Someday and Summertime. These were printed at all the same factories as before, except rather sadly, the Moscow Experimental Recording Plant. Apart from the unique labels on each disc from each factory, certain releases also contain further truly random inconsequential differences, such as the smaller star on the design going from yellow to bright gold to dirty gold to silver to red, uh, the MPL logo can either be green or gold, and then you have truly noticeable in-your-face changes, like the main star design on the front cover going from red to a darker red, pink and even orange. I myself own a darker red, orange and pink one, so if you see any further unique colorations, or if you own one yourself, please drop me an email or a photo at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. I'd love to find out about more variants. Then we come on to the second pressing mispress. Now, you'd like to think that the cock-ups would have ended with the original pressing fracas, but no, there was a further mispressed edition of the second version of Snother VCCR containing 12 tracks. That is something of an average between the first and second pressing, but the, the catch is... They've all got the same catalogue number as all of the correct editions. Meaning, the only way you can tell if you have one of these mispresses is that it does contain Summertime, but does not contain I'm Gonna Be A Wheel. It wasn't released by all of the factories and only appeared in the beginning of 1989. Now, for those who are familiar with the 13-track version of the album, will know that I'm Gonna Be A Wheel Someday and Summertime do not both feature on the same side, so... This is likely down to an error on the part of a single factory where they may have had the original pressing on one side and then the updated pressing on the other. 
a rather garish mistake, especially since I'm going to be a wheel someday is the superior song, but more on that later. Then we've got the bootleg editions of the album, because of course this album was going to be bootlegged, though I thought all the official albums were the large red star image on the front, and that the bootlegs had all the different colours, but no. So this is where it starts to get a bit hazy for me, as the variance between the bootleggers and the official releases is harder to distinguish than you might think, especially since the majority of these bootlegs actually tried to pass themselves off as the original edition rather than as like a unique item, like they are just trying to pass it off as the normal thing. However, there were a couple of distinctive bootlegs, with one image featuring Paul and Linda sat against a backdrop of clouds, as well as another that featured the regular album design but with a bold yellow colour as the background instead. Then we come on to the CD edition, when the album was finally released abroad, of course it went straight to CD, and to make sure you bought it, even if you had an imported vinyl or bootleg, McCartney added another bonus track, which me and Anthony do cover later, which was I'm In Love Again. Also for the CD outside of Russia, the main text of Snavar VCCR was replaced by Paul's own name in the acrylic alphabet, and the album title was moved down to the bottom right corner. And finally, we have the coloured vinyl and Spotify releases. Annoyingly, folks, all of the most recent editions of this album, for some reason, have reverted back to the original 11-track track listing. Firstly, we've got the digital and streaming versions of this album, you know, such as Spotify or Apple Music. They only have 11 songs. And then you have the special yellow-coloured vinyl edition of the album that Paul himself put out a few years ago, alongside some other live albums like Paul is Live, The Amoeba Gig, and Wings Over America. That only has 11 tracks. Now, this might be due to outdated contracts and licensing laws, but it's so fucking annoying that in 2021 I have to listen to a vinyl copy of the album just to get the full experience. Like, Capital, MPL, Paul, Apple. Do you want people to illegally download this music? Because that's how you get it. Anyway, folks, I've spent far too long going through these pointlessly different album covers... If I've missed anything, if you know of any other variants, again, please get in contact with me at paulmcconeypod at gmail.com. I'd love to learn more. But yeah, you've been patient long enough. I'm sure Anthony has been even more patient and he's wondering why he still hasn't heard his own voice on an episode he's hosting. So we'll just cut to him right now. Take it away, dude. Hello, everybody. This is Glass Onion on John Lennon. And it's also Paul or Nothing. This is the second half of a two-part swapcast with Sam Wiles from Paul or Nothing. And we thought that, uh, well, Sam's idea, in fact, that perversely he would introduce the John episode and I would introduce the Paul episode. So we did rock and roll a couple of weeks ago. It should be out by the time this goes out. So today it's, the only way I know how to pronounce this is Chobba B Cup. But uh, <laughs> Sam, <laughs> how are you doing? And how do you pronounce this album? Yeah, are we calling ideas? this uh, Chobba Snova back in the USSR, the Russian album? There's so many ways yeah. you can call it. Also, thank you for welcoming me on, man. This is really fun. This is glad we finally got around to this. I've always called it Chobber because it triggers people, but I think technically we should call it Snover. Really? Yeah, Chobber's well, just nice, so it just kind of roll, rolls off the tongue. Yeah. And you, you can call it Snover, I'll call it Chobber. Yeah, go on then. <laughs> anyway, yeah, it's Russian for back in the USSR. We should clear that up because I, I only discovered that about a week ago when we were researching this. I don't know why I'd never thought of it. Yeah, that, that damn acrylic Russian al- alphabet really throws you off, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Actually, I was thinking just before we 
get on to the background to this album. Just circling back to the Back in the USSR song, that's obviously on the first song on the White Album. Is there any sense that like perhaps they shouldn't have been glorifying the USSR? Or what do you think? Just popped uh, into my head. Yeah, like they don't really mention the Ukrainian famine in that song, do they? Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. I had a history teacher called Mr. Garrett who made us listen to that song, though, when we were doing G- uh, GCSE history. And mm. there is an inaccuracy in the song because, oh, there's a type of farmer. I'm, I'm going to have to get the, the lyrics up quickly. I might have to edit this out. Uh, no, that's all right. It's all right. It's balalaikas. Yes, that's the instrument. Uh, but there is Moscow Girls. Aha! So, take me to your daddy's farm. There wouldn't have been, like, no one would have owned a farm at that time in the USSR. It was all collectivization and everything mm. was pulled together. So, yeah, my, my history teacher, Mr. Garrett, shout out to him. He was very upset with McCartney's <laughs> inaccuracy there, though. Though, yeah. um, it does actually say the Ukraine girls really knock me out. Maybe that's a slight reference to one of the most horrible acts of genocide of the 20th century but maybe that's not the best conversation to start a light-hearted yeah, probably more innocent i think and it, the, <laughs> the fact that it was written in india of course was quite weird as well but uh yeah, yeah i think i think the idea was that there's obviously a, a chuck berry song called back in the usa mm-hmm. so it was a maca taking a little what's the word how, like, how, how much do people in england know about the ussr in depth in the in in the mid 60s though there was still the iron curtain you know I think that's the point. They were trying to give a give a nod to the USSR. I don't know if it was supposed. I don't think it was supposed to be really subversive or just subversive in a very gentle way. But I don't think he thought about it that much. I just thought it was a fun twist on back in the USA. You know, I think. I think a song in Soviet in in the Soviet Union that is about peace and love and being kind is subversive in itself. But I think the Beatles mm. didn't have to do anything to really subvert such a regime. Obviously, you, yeah. uh, you recommended to me uh, a, li- a little documentary mm. on YouTube about the, the Beatles in, in the USSR. And it is kind of cool just just to think that not only was it like, you know, they didn't print the records there. And, and, if, and, and if they did, it was highly illegal. But they would mm. have to use old vinyl from X-ray machines to actually scratch the uh, recordings onto for Beatles singles and stuff. That's proper bootleg stuff like that. That was really yeah. exciting. Yeah, so it's called How the Beatles Rock the Kremlin, and uh, it's on YouTube. I'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah, it was. Um, Spoiler alert: yeah. that they don't rock the Kremlin. <laughs> well, it's. Um, I think that it makes quite a bold claim that they were a, a major thing in uh, driving out communism. But what I liked about the documentary, it's got a nice sense of humour. So they mm. talk about um, young Russians would tape songs from uh, Radio Luxembourg, and they'd kind of uh, they'd be like a sort of a black market or clandestine so in the documentary they show like i don't know i can't remember exactly how they do it but like someone with an overcoat and in a dark yeah. street yeah and they'd bend them as well they'd, they'd bend them and fold them i'm like oh god the the fidelity must have been awful but if you've got no <laughs> access to beetle music at all you will take one that has <laughs> on it you know just so you can hear that music yeah there's quite a bit of ingenuity involved in the, in this documentary but it's definitely a good one yeah and i like uh towards the end the uh, they show like a Soviet propaganda film from 1966. And it's, it says there's some brilliant inaccuracies. It said the Beatles used to play in swimming shorts with a toilet seat around the neck. And of course, John <laughs> Lennon did once have a toilet seat around his neck in Hamburg. And then it, then they talk about London dealer, Brian Epstein. <laughs> that, that is both inaccuracy and mistranslations all put into one. Yeah. Brilliant yeah. Soup there. Yeah. But no, it's a good, uh, it's a good documentary. Like I said, I like the sense of humor aspect of it. 
And um, it's definitely, there was stuff I didn't know, but like I say, I don't quite agree with the central claim of it, you know? Well, it's, it's ironic as well, because there's that famous book, uh, book cover or pamphlet cover that you sometimes see going around Facebook Beatle groups where it, in, in America it was like the Beatles and the communist threat or something like mm. that. And the American government were thinking, oh, these Beatles are dangerous to this capitalist society. And mm. over in the communist society, they're thinking, oh, these Beatles are dangerous. And I guess the takeaway is the Beatles were just dangerous to the establishment. Yeah, but but yeah, but it's strange because in in a kind of almost like a parent friendly way, because I know you and I are obviously huge Beatles fans, and the the appeal of them perhaps can perhaps if you compare them to the Rolling Stones, they've got this all round appeal. So there's edgy stuff, there's hard rocking stuff, there's music hall. You know, we've had this conversation many mm-hmm. times, obviously, but yeah, but I think they are. I think they were genuinely subversive because when you've got the ear of the young, so to speak. That's quite a big deal. So I'm saying that I don't agree with the central claim of the of the documentary, but I it opened my eyes up to a point. Oh yeah, like so, I mean, yeah. a man must break his back to earn his day of leisure. Sung in a negative light, <laughs> you cannot have that being played on the factory floor, can you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, just well, just also the spirit of you know the spirit of freedom. And I, I was on a show recently, and they were asking me whether the, the Beatles lyrics had uh, any direct significance, and I was saying. I mean, obviously, there's a few things like, you know, take a sad song and make it better or um, mm. life flows on within you without you. But I was saying with the Beatles, it's more a general philosophy, you know, rather than specific lyrics. Wouldn't you say? I, sorry, I, I just love mm. that one of your go to Beatle lines that is deep and meaningful to you is life flows on within you and without you. Because everyone always takes the mick that that is my favorite song from Sergeant Pepper. But it's so easily the, the standout track from that selection. I say it's one of the, the one that's getting more like cachet as the years, especially because of that, you know, that mashup within you, without you and tomorrow never knows. Oh, it was on love. My yeah. God. Great stuff. Isn't it? That's more of a, a sort of a direct philosophical line, you know, mm-hmm. George with his Eastern philosophy. But yeah, I think Beatles music in, in general to a young person, it's just inspiring. I don't know, you know, more of, I don't know. Do you, do you think there's any like general, is it a general philosophy or are there any specific philosophies? Maybe it's, maybe the philosophy is dangerous because they, they are, they are a melting pot. They, they take East, they take West, they take old, mm. they take young. They don't box people in with this nice friendly little, Mark, like markation system and mm. showing people that you, there's different ways of thinking you know this is mm. this, this is not how you build a red army yeah and think of uh, you know imagine a kid in russia seeing the hey jude clip as well so you've got a black guy you've got a sikh with a turban you know 
I mean, that's, that's sending a message, you know. Oh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure, you know, St. Petersburg would have definitely had a representation diversity problem on their radio and TV waves, for sure. <laughs> it yeah. would have been all very traditional baralaika and accordion kind of folk music. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which sounds like, you know, the 1930s, not the 1960s and 70s. It sounds very beige. Yeah, well, I think, um, I don't know if it's from this documentary or somewhere else, I think that Russia, for example, they had their quote-unquote 1960s at some point in the 80s. It's like Spain as well, because I used to live in Spain, and General Franco, you know, was, was yeah. a dictator. He died in 75, and it took a few more years for democracy to really take hold in Spain. So they they think of the 1980s as we think of the 1960s, even though you and I weren't born, but you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, and, so like, it's and funny. like Cuba's having their 1960s pretty much now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? But the music, I think, so I don't know whether, I mean, I, I still contend that like 60s music is like supernaturally good, like yeah. the amount of great music and the frequency with which it came out. But I wonder whether, because maybe I'm a, I'm a decent judge and you're a decent judge because we weren't born in the 60s, but some, maybe someone born in the 60s, maybe you glorify the music because of the times. So, uh, you know, Spanish and Italian, actually, they, they love the 1980s. And um, the well, 80s is yeah. kind of the decade has been forgotten a bit in, in England anyway. Especially, especially for uh, McCartney, but I'm not going to go into that now. <laughs> well, on the, well, yeah, can I segue then? Because uh, mm. I did want to ask you, Macca now has obviously had a 50-year solo career, which is amazing. Uh, where is he in his solo career when he, when he makes this album? So, yeah. yeah, it's a very weird point in his career. It's before Flowers in the Dirt, which I actually got wrong. I thought this came out after, but he's put out Press to Play. That's bombed. He's done the Phil Ramone sessions in New York. They've been completely shit-canned. Most, most of it still hasn't been released to this day. And we, we, we mentioned this on the Lennon uh, episode for Rock and Roll, that both Lennon and McCartney, they have this kind of, fight or flight mechanism whereby in mm. times of great stress they will retreat into rock and roll and we'll see Paul do the exact same thing with Run Devil Run and the death of Linda. Yeah. It just seems like this is the perfect way for him to clean out the cobwebs, dust himself off and not have to worry about his output because that's what mm -hmm. you know has been stressing him out over the last five years. The fact that his songs haven't been doing very well and I mean, this whole album wouldn't have even come out if several of these songs hadn't have ended up as B-sides uh, on maxi singles. Like uh, my copy of My Brave Face, the 12 inch on the B-side has Ain't That a Shame and I'm Gonna Be a Wheel Someday. Mm. And I prefer both of those songs to My Brave Face, if I'm honest. And mm -hmm. it was the reception of those tracks amongst his fandom that actually inspired him to release all of the material anyway i'm sure we'll get we'll get to that shortly but mm. i guess i guess the fact of the matter is this is a very uncertain period of mccartney's career and he's just trying to make something that isn't going to be completely trashed and scolded mm. by the uh, rock intelligentsia which have roundly turned on him by this point i mean lennon kind of faced the harsher criticism mid-70s but mm. mccartney's had about well, this is 78 now, so he's had about 10 years, a decade of really quite bad press, and he's probably sick of it by this point. Really? When did it start then, would you say? I'd say Just... the, bad, the, the bad press starts after uh, Wings Over America. And besides the, right. oh, we're sorry, your best friend died blip of tug of war, 
something that album still receives to this day. It's mm. an incredibly overrated album, Tug of War. Yeah, I said that, folks. You heard Pipes of Peace <laughs> is better. <laughs> but even coming to this album, Chobber, Snobber, back in the SSR, Russian album, I remember, like, this is a real dark horse in the fandom. Like, it's not a particularly popular album. Kind of like rock and roll with mm. Lennon fans. They don't seem to give mm. it the, the uh, credence it deserves. Oh, well, Paul didn't write it, so it's throwaway or it's not, not as important. But without mm. this album, without something positive coming out of his career in the late 80s, he may never have even fucking got back on the road. Flowers in the Dirt may never have took off the way it did and... The fact that the best songs on Tripping the Live Fantastic are the, are the covers that he did on Chopper says mm. a lot about where his priorities were at this time. And I'm so glad he did this album because it's one of my favourites of his in the entire yeah. canon. I, I, like, I like this more than Red Rose Speedway. I like this more than Back to the Egg, London Town, certainly Wings at the Speed of Sound. This is a, this is a classic top 10 McCartney album for me. Right. Yeah, I totally get that sort of... It, yeah, these rock and roll albums... They're almost like a stopgap. They're they're like a feel good thing that a rocker can do, particularly like a someone who's you know his main. Well, I'd say the music they'd always go back to is the fifties, like John and Paul. It's it's kind of a way to yeah, it's it's, it's like a feel good sort of stopgap, and then you can perhaps be writing songs in the same at the same time. But uh, I can't remember. Um, is there a is there a biography called McCartney: A Life? Is that one of the ones you've read or? I'm sh- I've, I've, I think he's got his hands crisscrossed on the front. I'm sure Beetle Books has posted about, about that one very recently. Oh, I'm um, sure. Yeah, we should ask Joe, shouldn't we? But um, yeah, they make that point that uh, it, it's a way of sort of getting back to basics. And you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna record, you know, Kansas City, Twenty Fight Rock as well. We'll get there, but uh, that's obviously one that's got huge significance for Paul. Oh no, this and, whole and album, the, the whole album's full of. Wink and nod Beatles references, you know. Mm, mm. But he, but you've got some real surefire stuff, and he knows that he can do them well, and he gets a good band, and can't really go wrong. But uh, we'll get to the tracks in a sec. So, um, just tell us a bit about the background. So, uh, am I right in thinking this was recorded in '87, but it wasn't actually in the British or American market till '91? Have I got that right? So, I've got the recording session put down to two days. Um, yeah. Yeah. 20th of July, 88, and the 21st of July, 88. Okay. On the first day, you've got Macca on bass and vocals. Then you've got mm. Mick Green on guitar. I'm not too familiar with Mick Green. Then on the piano, for both days, you've got Mick Gallagher, who was um, Ian Jury's pianist. All right, yeah. And Which is quite odd, because McCartney appeared on an Ian Jury tribute album with Mick Gallagher like 20 years later, which is quite nice as well. Mm. And then... The chap who would go on to join the McCartney touring band, you got Chris Witten on drums for the for the first day. Yeah. And on that one they played Kansas City, Twenty Flight Rock, Lordy Miss Claudie, I'm in Love Again, Bring It Home to Me, Lucille, Gonna Be a Wheel Someday, That's Alright, Mama, Summertime, Just Because, Midnight Special, and a song that doesn't appear anywhere called It's Now or Never. Oh. On the second day, you got uh, McCartney on guitar and vocals, which the liner notes of the album are very keen to remind you of. Uh, Mick Gallagher's on the keys again then you got Henry Spinetti on the drums that name is familiar to me but I don't know where is he a Billy Joel guy? Um, he's, he's not Victor's son is he? no no, no, no I don't think so <laughs> no because um, there's also that guitarist from from the Ram album uh, Dave Spinoza I thought, it, I thought it was him as well oh <laughs> yeah and then uh, you've got Nick Garvey on bass and backing vocals as well 
And on that day, they sang a McCartney original called I Wanna Cry, which is on the This One 12-inch single. Really rubbish. Is that, mm. Yeah, yeah. And then they played Don't Get Around Much Anymore, Ain't That A Shame, and Cracking Up. Though oh. there were some undetermined tracks that have kind of made their way out there that have either never been heard or rumoured to exist. Take This Hammer, No Other Baby, Cut Across Shorty, Poor Boy, Lend Me Your Comb, and mm. a version of I Saw Her Standing There, which is probably in the top 10 solo McCartney archive, where the fuck is this tracks? <laughs> that, is that an official uh, name for it? <laughs> yeah, oh, oh yeah, it's, uh, I'm, I'm sure I'll do a blog post on it on it, on it one day. But okay. The, 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 the main point of these sessions, though, uh, McCartney mentions this in the Put It There documentary, which, I, which I, mm. I, I just reviewed with Andy Dixon, and it's just Paul going, you know, it's just everyone knows all these songs and they've got easy chords. And as a guy who loves to play in shitty jam bands in garage, in garages, I can totally empathise with what Paul means here. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm a terrible drummer, a terrible, a terrible guitarist, and a terrible bass player. But if you get a 50s rock and roll number on, I can pick up any of those instruments and uh, the song will be learned in five minutes. They'll probably oh, and, that's, and that's the beauty of it, the three yeah. chord thing, the 12 bar blues. It's beautiful. You well, just say, oh, we're, we're in A, you know, three chords in A, <laughs> everyone's fine, you know. And then, you know, in the get back oh. sessions when um, the Beatles would just take, they could take any 50 12 bar blues songs. Mm. Paul would do one bass line for all of them and they'd do great medleys. Like if John and Paul had yeah. done Chubber or Rock and Roll together, it probably would have just been one unbroken 12 bar blues jam. That would have been like the apple jam on um, All Things Must Pass. Well, just, yeah, circling back to the John Lennon one, wasn't there was a, what was the two-song medley on there? And it just seemed like he was doing the same song twice. Oh, Ready Teddy and um, yeah. Rip It Up. Yeah, was it that one? Was yeah. it the, the other one? Yeah, one of the two, anyway. Yeah. There was another medley. <laughs> there was another medley as well. Fortunately, yeah. I don't host a Lennon podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember <laughs> what was going on then. Um, is there anything else before we get to the to the songs? Anything um, else about the oh, who were those? Um, so those musicians. The only one I actually had heard of was Chris Whitten. I knew that was from his uh, touring band. Mm. And just one other thing about this stage, I would say that maybe the the modern Macca started. A lot of people say that in the late eighties is when he started doing Beatles songs again. Mm. Um, so he's the type of concerts that he's doing now sort of started then. So. Did, had he worked? Did you say he'd worked with any of these other guys before? Well, you worked, he worked with the injury guy later, but where did, where did he get these guys from? Do you know? They were just around. I think it was just a general casting call. Right. I, I, I don't think he did the, the casting couch or, or anything, but, <laughs> you know, McCartney knows hundreds of session musicians. Just look at the yeah. sessions for Pipes of Peace and Tug of War. He could just go, oh, we'll get that guy, and we'll get that guy, and we'll get that guy. And he picks the best of the best here, you know. Mm. Chris Whitten is absolutely killer on this album. So is Mick Gallagher. And um, Chris would go on to prove himself immensely over the next two, two albums as well. Uh, mm. one, of the, one, one of the longest running like McCartney solo collaborators, really low key. Mm. The interesting thing about the release of this album, though, is that there's a bit of mystery as to who wanted it to be released or who didn't want it to be released. There's the rumours mm. that McCartney wanted it to come out in the UK and US as per normal. And his new manager, Richard Ogden, goes, no, you're not doing that. A, because it's going to be compared to rock and roll, which, mm. I mean, 
the fact that we're doing this episode is proof is proof of that. So I'm not going to hold that against Ogden, but mm. apparently to keep Paul, you know, satisfied and to kind of hopefully shut him up a bit, he printed a couple of bootleg esque um, facsimiles of what the album could look like. Paul mm. gives it out to his family and friends over Christmas, which he seems to do a lot. Like he tends people to send people away for Christmas and then ask them to come back with new ideas. <laughs> right. And apparently everyone loved all of this stuff. They thought it was some of his best work in ages. So then essentially what McCartney wanted the plan to be was mm. for it to actually become a real life bootleg. Obviously one of the dirty uh, secrets is that all the Beatles like bootlegs, but they're just not allowed to legally say it. Lennon sent people to Beatles Fest every year in New York to pick him up cool stuff. Are you telling me yeah. Harrison and Ringo don't own a, a copy of, you know, the Butcher cover? I don't care how much you hated being in, in, in the Beatles. Everyone loves their merch. And yeah. I think Paul's yeah. just a bit more upfront about it, isn't he? Oh yeah, and he 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 defends the merch as well. He makes music videos about how the merch is always his and will never be anyone else's. Mm. (laughs) And essentially, McCartney wanted this bootleg idea to become a reality. So both Capital and NPL go over to Russia and strike up a relatively unprecedented deal. These these kind of albums did not get any kind of real release in Russia. Typically, they'd be bootlegged in from the West, not the other way around. But Elton John and Billy Joel, about a year before, had had Titanic Russian tours. And that essentially, you know, opened the doors at the embassy a little bit, maybe greased mm. the wheels, maybe Macca, you know, pushed a few rubles to the to the right officials, who knows. But yeah. they ended up getting out a contract and a limited pressing with the record label Melodia, even though it does look like Melodia, but it's just it's just the Russian acrylic for melodic. Mm. And various US reference books have the release at the 31st of October, 88. However, this first edition, as I'll go into in uh, my vinyl saga on my own uh, version of this show, uh, okay. only had about 50,000 pressings, 100,000 pressings. That one was missing two of the songs. And people had to write into the like, Russian ministry, like, where are our two Paul McCartney songs? And the big problem with this was, unlike England, where you've got a very set, or America, you, you've got a centralised record producing industry and a record distribution industry in russia there's like 60 different factories for 60 different cities all over the country and this leads to probably more versions of chobber than there are mccartney 3 and i'm not kidding here folks is that possible (laughs) yeah oh no there's probably there's there's probably a cassette there's probably cassette cds 30 different vinyls Although I haven't, mm-hmm. I haven't seen a coloured vinyl. If I can get a coloured vinyl of Jobber, I'll gladly spend another 50 quid on that. <laughs> um, can I ask a question? So do you say Billy Joel and Elton John, were they the first Western musicians to play gigs in, in, in the USSR or not? Certainly been... from what Wikipedia and YouTube have told me, yes. <laughs> right. Um, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, people didn't tend to go on huge tours in the USSR. I mean, mm. you, you never hear like, oh... The Beach Boys are in Sevastopol. You know, you just don't see stuff, stuff like that. Oh, shares in St. Petersburg. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> like nowadays, Russia is it's like China in terms of like big record buying audiences like mm. Metallica. Half of their sales go to Russia. They are huge over there. Is that right? Oh, yeah. There's there's a very famous um, video where 
it's like all the all this kind of ex-Soviet bloc police trying to keep back a, a horde of like two million hairy Russians from storming the stage. And then by the time they get to enter Sandman, even the secret police are headbanging as well. It's brilliant. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, so yeah, let's talk about the album. <clears throat> so just circling back for a second to the John Lennon one. We were, we were doing, like, rankings per song. We can do that here or not. It's sure, yeah. It's totally, totally up to you. Um, I think halfway through the other episode we did, I was saying, like, rock and roll's a solid 8 out of 10, and then I think by the end of it, it had gone down to 7.5. And and <laughs> in hindsight, I'm going to say it's more 7.5 because it's, it's it was pretty patchy. And what was very interesting is that this album is so different in that the John Lennon one, I think we were using analogies like bloated and flabby, or I was anyway, things like that. They had some sort of really busy percussion, and some of that congas slash bongo mm. stuff worked quite well, and there was a bit of variety going on. I think having listened to this album a couple of times, the word for it really is solid, and it's, to, to keep the weight analogy going, it's lean. You know, it's lean and mean. It's very, very solid. There's a couple of uh, non-rock songs, of course. Yeah. My only general criticism, really the only one, because I have rated these songs and all of them come in between eight and nine. So wow. there's not, yeah, there's not too much variation because they're, they're all just really solid. The only thing I would say, there's, there's pretty much no vocal harmonies at all. And I think you really could have done with that. There's some BVs occasionally, but... Um, yeah, like um, you get a I little bit surprised. of it on a cracking up and that's a real highlight of that track, but you are right. Yeah. I mean, the one that... Well, maybe we'll say when we get to it, but uh, there's a certain song right at the end that was just crying out for harmonies. And, uh, any idea why you didn't do that? Was it just, I don't know. Well, it, says, it says in the liner notes that uh, the two guitarists he worked with were on backing vocals. Maybe, you know, mm. it's only because it was two days. Look at something like Silly Love Songs or Long Haired Lady. Those vocal harmonies were not done in a two-day, one-and-done session. So... Mm. Maybe McCartney for more complex harmonies, he would prefer to take his time on that. And this is definitely a drive-by, one-and-done, quick-gun kind of recording session. And mm. that's very much done on purpose, you know. The press-to-play sessions took forever. The, the Flowers in the Dirt ones will take even longer. He hates the fact that Two Tribes took three months for Frankie Goes to Hollywood to produce. Um, so, yeah, he definitely just mm. wants to do something fun, three chords everyone knows how to do yeah. this and the Simplicity. Fact, like, he's been playing these songs since like the star club and you know the jacaranda before that if well since the village sorry since the village fate as well in the, <laughs> in the in the case of 20 fight rock yeah no they're just so part of his dna aren't they basically yeah there's no surprise that this album's as strong as it is is it really mm. have you got any more um sort of general uh, opinions about the songs before you go into specifics um i mean my kind of shorthand for the for the two albums, Rock and Roll and Snover, Chobber, is that mm. Rock and Roll is much better produced, but that's because it had a longer production angle to it. Mm. Chobber, the instrumentation and vocals are just chalk and cheese. They just leave Rock and Roll in the dust, I'm afraid. And mm. a lot of that is just down to McCartney's a better vocalist and musician than Lennon anyway. You, you can fight me on that point. No, um, no, that's fair enough. Yeah. And, you know, McCartney's the natural showman... The, it makes much more sense that he would do this album. I know John is the rocker, but I find it quite funny that Mr. Silly Love Songs actually does the rock and roll album a little bit better than John does in both execution and concept. 
Well, I think the context as well. I mean, uh, I, I've, I've actually <laughs> just been reading, as I was telling you earlier, I'm reading the Goldman book in its entirety because I'm going to be on a podcast talking about it in, in March. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he, he paints a very vivid picture of, like, how horribly messy those sessions were. And, and the thing is that Spectre had got, like, uh, I know we've already covered this, sorry, but Spectre had got, got like, 20 musicians or something to turn up. So, like I say, with rock and roll, I mean, the way Macca did it was perfect, you know, four or five people. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I'm I'm just yeah I'm just trying to picture George George Martin like firing a gun off in in like you know Steve, yeah Ab- Aberhead Studio too, but it'd be more like a blunderbuss for him, wouldn't it? Or turning up in a butcher's smock or a, as a karate <laughs> expert, whatever it was. Yeah, I've got the um, Mary Hopkins tapes. <laughs> uh, what was I going to say? Yeah, what do you think about the the fifties echo on the voice? Because I, I loved it at the beginning, and I thought maybe it wasn't always required. What do you think about that? I like it when it's pushed to the max on something like Ain't right. That a Shame. Like, Ain't That a Shame, Ain't That a Shame, Ain't That a Shame. Like, just doing that, like, in a round thing. Mm. I don't know how much of it is, like, the actual technology they had in the studio at the time. I don't know how much of it is an affectation in post. Because it's quite inconsistent mm-hmm. over the whole album. It's a lot more present on some songs than it is others. Yeah. Especially, like, the... Um, the non-rock songs that we'll get into, it's pretty much non, non, non-existent on those. But mm. the moment, you know, do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do comes in, suddenly there's a little bit of echo on it. And yeah. it's it's an all right effect. It's not as obtrusive as a lot of Lennon's vocal production choices are on rock and roll. Mm. I think it's quite inoffensive. And if you don't notice it, it's it's no one's going to you know make you notice it. Yeah. And it means obviously in good voice as well. The best. And one thing... We start on the track, so Kansas City. why the the version on Beatles for Sale has got different lyrics is this the original Kansas City so um, it was written by Lieber and Stoller you know, yeah. Richard sang it and then over the course of playing it so many times he added his own coda called Hey 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 oh right yeah. and that's the Beatles version so this is McCartney going I'm gonna do the version before the Beatles so this is him being a mm. real hipster at this point and you know, there's going to be something that we you can almost say on every McCartney album post 1975. Oh, I wish it was the younger Paul. And mm. here, on this album, doesn't really apply. He actually shreds his vocals. He, mm. he he delivers this electric explosion that isn't quite 64, but it's the yeah. it's the 8990 World Tour voice, but without all that weird screeching. Like this is a fantastic Paul vocal; it's really strong, and 
that's quite annoying for me actually because I find the actual song itself a little bit of a letdown. Quite like Bebop Alula. They both open with a, a lively track, but not the liveliest one. I think they both miss an opportunity mm. to kick things off with a bang. And shockingly enough, I think Lennon actually did it better with Bebop Alula here. I'm probably only going to give this one a 6 out of 10. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I'm giving it 8. I think it's solid. Now, the thing I was saying about the lyrics, because in the Beatles one, it's Kansas City, gonna take my baby back home. And this is Kansas City, Kansas City, here I come. So presumably the Beatles changed it. I think this is the original. I mean, Beatles and lyric fidelity, especially when we're concerning John, is is a, a, a tricky, tricky hole to get to, uh, get around. Mm-hmm. But uh, with the voice, yeah, I mean, yeah, I agree with you. It doesn't sound that different to Beatles for Sale. Obviously, he's not going to sound 22, but he sounds like a, just a more mature version, but with almost the same energy. So I don't think he, I don't think he really sounds his age, to be honest. He sounds very youthful. Mm. And the front cover, we didn't talk about the cover art, to be as well. Oh, let's just, let, let's just talk about the, the front cover. Mm, I've been, it's, um, it's, it's taken from the Ram Sessions. That's why he looks so young. Oh, is it really? Oh, shit. Yeah, okay. yeah. It's an old, that Lind- explains it's a, it. an old yeah. Linda photo. And if you uh, open up your copy of Ram, he'll be facing from left to right. But if you get a little mirror, you know, turn that mirror sideways, add a little bit of a dotty effect to it, that'll be the uh, Chobber front cover. So. Oh, there's a little bit of a parallel with John again, because John had the 1961 cover. Oh, yeah. 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 Mm, that's good. <laughs> And then, I mean, Paul would do it the most egregiously on the pure McCartney cover, where he literally uses, like, a McCartney one photo for an album he released in 2017. Oh, really? <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, I'm giving that eight. The, the performance is great. I'm, just, I'm not totally mad on the song. Do you song. think it's about, like, a minute too long? Yeah, but, you know, eight, seven and a half. <laughs> Shit, I've been talked down again. <laughs> All right, I'll go seven and a half. I'm bringing him down, folks. So <laughs> I'm what, not going any further than seven. We're on an half. average of seven for this song, then. <laughs> 20 Flight Rock. Would you, would you maybe have started the album with this, then? I think that would have been pretty good. I know Paul probably thought it was going to be too obvious, mm. just because everyone, even in 88, is going to know the importance of 20 Flight Rock. It's the Eddie yes. Cochran classic. Paul walks up to John during the uh, the, the uh, skiffle show at, at the fair. Everyone's mm. seen this song uh, in Nowhere Boy. And, yeah. yeah, it's good, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> what they, more- do it, they do it well, yeah. What more could you want from this song? I mean, yeah. it's it's a fantastic Beatles reference in itself, but he also just plays it incredibly well. And I mean, Paul's been making different bands play this song 
since the breakup of the Beatles, like this, this appeared in, in like every version of Wings. He's gonna make, you know, his current touring band still play this song. I, this was even in the Cavern that was played at this Christmas during the Egypt Station tour. So, is it? Yeah, there is that. There is no way this song is not literally encoded in the double helix of Paul McCartney's DNA. And obviously, you know, you can tell he's into it as well. It's a significant song in his history. Yeah, I'm giving this nine. I've given two songs this album nine, and that's one of them. I'll give it a nine as well, totally. Yeah, great the, stuff. The, the, there's one weird bit in the lyrics, though, where it doesn't rhyme. It's like, you find my corpse draped over the rail. Like, that doesn't rhyme or match with anything in the previous line. I just thought there was a, a really weird moment. It's a, Let's talk about the song itself, though. It is wonderfully cheeky sexy Paul like mm. if you don't like come on to me and and fur you like go and go and uh, check out this because I mean yeah. I'm too tired to rock that is probably one of my favourite double entendres in music history it really yeah. it, it really is yeah all these things rock and roll boogie they're all like sexual innuendos basically aren't they they were I, all invented to be that I, these terms I have learnt so much about Chuck Berry and Little Richard researching these these two albums Tutti yeah. Fruity has the most X-rated backstory I have ever heard for a song and I don't get shocked easily folks I, <laughs> I was aghast I really was but that is for another podcast well you gotta leave them wanting a bit you know yeah <laughs> alright Lordy Miss Claudie Giving again, I, I'm going to say eight. It's perfectly fine. Elvis song, Fats Domino, can't really go wrong. Anything about this? Yeah, um, I I did find this song quite funny because it's technically not a Fats Domino cover, but Fats Domino and Dave Bartholomew, his writing partner, were both just session musicians at that time. So mm. you know, if we can't get a Fats Domino song, we'll at least get one that he played on. Yeah, um, I think on this album, and I, like I say, I, I like all these songs, but I think I. I would just tend to side with the ones that I didn't know so well. You know, Kansas mm. City and Lordy Miss Claudia, I know so well that I'd probably just mark them down for that reason, really. But, uh, yeah, it's solid, perfectly good. Yeah, for, for me, this is one of those songs that I definitely knew of. Like, yeah, I'm sure I've heard of the phrase Lordy Miss Claudia, mm. but this is the first time I've ever really sat, sat down with the track. And immediately the first thing that came to my mind was name and address from 78's London Town, where Paul is already doing a pretty spot-on Elvis impression. So mm. it's nice to see that he he whips this old Elvis impression out whilst he's got a proper, you know, studio band with him. And, yeah. you know, instead of like a, a lame duck, poor man's homage to, to Elvis with, with uh, wings instead. 
Mm. Oh, interestingly, a little tangent. Um, are you aware that in spite of all the danger, sounds almost exactly like an Elvis, an Elvis song called Trying to Get to You? Have a listen after this podcast. It's, it's I, quite might, I, I might even put it as the uh, the final clo- closing track. We'll do a little, a little comparison. Yeah. <laughs> I played it when I was on the Elvis podcast because he pointed it out and I'd never heard of it. It's, it's exactly the same. Different key, but... Another fantastic song to a jam to, in, 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 in spite of all the danger. Everyone likes mm-hmm. to pretend they're, they're Paul doing the backing vocals, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, for me, though, Paul is... I mean, I've just spoken about sexy Paul uh, with 25 Rock, but mm. Paul is, like, channeling the swagger that Elvis had in the 68 Comeback special in, in this song for mm. me, like, He's so showmany, and then like when he gets to the oh, bye, bye, babe, he's like he's spitting out the words. It's great, you know. Although in the liner notes, I feel like Derek Taylor must have been brought back from the grave for a brief moment because it says songs like "Lordy Miss Claudie" were tailor made for the McCartney treatment. Calm, <laughs> calm down a bit, but uh, yeah, I'll I'll give this one an eight as well. Mm. Yep. Okay. I'm in love again. reason why he was doing a lot of fat domino i mean there's nothing wrong with it fat domino is great but I, I didn't realize how many were fats was he just getting into him at that point or well he already knew the stuff i, I haven't really seen any specific quotes where paul just talks about fats domino for a while like paul will talk mm. about elvis at the drop of a hat but he never mm. seems to talk about fats domino i only know about fats domino because of the a side of i'm in love again which is my blue heaven which became mm. a, a, a Steve Martin movie, which is technically the same character of Henry Hill from Goodfellas as well, mm. which is one of the strangest pieces of movie trivia ever. It, you know, it'd be like finding out that Sam Neill's character in Jurassic Park and Superman are the same person. It's like, <laughs> this, this, this doesn't fit at all. But yeah, McCartney loves Fats Domino, though compared to the other two Fats Domino tracks on this album... Uh, mm. This is the song that ruins the hat trick. Like, this is quite a lifeless by the numbers track compared to I'm Gonna Be a Will Someday and Ain't That a Shame. Yeah, that's a lot of it is down to the, the, the song itself. I mean, for me, this particular cover is what everything people would have wrongly assumed about Chobber. Like, oh, this is the mm. completely throwaway McCartney rock and roll. It's almost like, you know, it, it's an obligation that old rockers do this kind of thing. Mm. And I totally get why this was left off the album. Like this is pretty much only, you know, this only exists because you know you got to put something bonus on the CD to sell all of those extra formats. Ah, uh, okay, this is on the CD, right? Okay, yeah. got it. It's it's pretty much like uh, the next year with all my trials. 
because that would mm. go on the Tripping the Life Fantastic Highlights Edition. There's just one bonus song on it. Yeah. I mean, McCartney's still doing that to this day. Buy the blue version of the album, you get one extra demo on it. Yeah. I like the keyboard solo on this. Is this the one with the dog barking as well? Yes. Not, not an actual <laughs> dog, obviously, but uh, I like all that stuff. That, that circles back to the Beatles. Oh, yeah. I feel fine. There's a dog barking. Hey, bulldog. There's yeah. a dog I barking on I feel fine. Uh, I think it's on one of the versions. Oh, oh no, okay. no. Just at the very, very end. You can do it like, woo, woo, woo. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> nah, very end. That's almost like finding out Paul goes, fucking hell, in the middle of Hey Jude. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, for me, this is the... I'm going to give this one a five or even a four. Ooh. I don't like this song. I'm, I, oh. I, I'm actually against it. I was eight, I was eight again. Everything I've gotten here is between eight and nine. Uh, eight and nine, unless specified otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, go seven, I'll go 7.5 for Solidarity again. But, uh, <laughs> nah, it's pretty good, yeah. I didn't realise it was, wasn't on the original album, yeah. All right. Bring it on home. So I guess the big question, yes. how does this uh, compare to John's version, would you say? Oh, uh, I, I do prefer this one. I, I mean, I mean, look, I do miss the vocoder from the John version. I mean, mm. I'm a sucker for, for a, a, bit, a, a bit of vocoder, but this is the first track on this album that, you know, we're going to bring things down for a slower number, show off the diversity of the musicianships amongst the players, and yeah. kind of like... Stand by me on Lennon's album, and we're going to see this a lot on this album. Like done more with songs like uh, "Don't Don't Get Around Much Anymore" or "Summertime." Mm. It's when McCartney picks a not so obvious non-rocker and then changes the arrangement slightly and makes it a bit mm. more rock and rolly. That makes it so much more interesting for me. Mm. And the Mick Green solo as well on this one is just gorgeous. Yeah, I've got that here. There's the the sort of answering licks and then the solo. Yeah, yeah. Love it. I've actually got here better than JL, so there you go. <laughs> I agree with you. Are you are you uh, in, are you and John on a, a on a abbreviated terms now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. JL, I've written J and Y so many times in my notes for podcasts. Me and, me and John a, and Yoko. PM. <laughs> yeah, PM. Yeah, exactly. G H L R S etc. Yeah, mean, just particularly I've, the guitar that stood out. Yeah, a lot. Yeah. I've seen a lot with my covers episodes. Like the best McCartney covers are when you get a badass vocal in to come in and do one of McCartney's melodies justice. But with this, it's the tables have turned. We've got McCartney coming in with quite a, a simple, not particularly complex rocker and mm. putting his own spin on it and making it just more badass. If, if, if I'm honest, this is a nine. Yep. 
I was going to go eight and a half. So uh, yeah, pretty pretty good. Lucille. I've got to be honest I think if I I think I preferred him doing Long Tall Sally when he's doing Little Richard why, I mean, why doesn't he do Long Tall Sally on this album you, yeah. you, you've already done Kansas Paul come on yeah that's true this is still I mean, it's still perfectly fine I just think um, compared, if I compared it to Little Richard to say I think Long Tall Sally compares more favourably with Little Richard but yeah it's fine Oh, well, the worst anyway. part is, is that, like, I mean, th- this was a part of Wing's first set list when he was doing the university tours. Ah, uh, that's and, right, and yeah, yeah. Tours. I mean, we've already established that saying, I wish this was the Paul vocal uh, is irrelevant, but I do kind of wish this was the Wing's vocal. Mm. I mean, like 20 Flight Rock, you, there are expectations for this song, mm. and there is that little bit nagging me at the back of my head, where I'm like, I wish Paul had just let it rip a little bit more like make this the twist and shout of the day record yeah. Lucille last and just go <gasps> like you know I'll, I want to see blood coming out the gums and that's just <laughs> not what comes out and may, maybe this yeah. vocal is one of the only casualties of the super fast production style we had with this album mm. well I think uh, when we did uh, Toot and Snore last year I mean I know Toot and Snore is kind of hard to judge because it it wasn't intended oh, they at all. Then as well, don't they? Yeah. yeah, and I don't think John then, and I don't think Paul here. They, I don't think they quite nailed the Lucille, the actual Lucille. Just quite, not quite as much as Little Richard. But you're comparing it to Little Richard, so that may be unfair. But his is obviously the original <laughs> version. But I don't think Eden quite nail it. But yeah, it's still pretty good. Still well, going eight. This is the thing, Anthony. Like, it's not mm. like John Lennon was constantly touting the fact that he can do a, a little Richard impression, but when you've mm. got Paul, who is famous for his quote-unquote little Richard howl, mm. you expected a little bit more, and that's why I'm only going to give this one a seven. I think it's just because that's based on Long Tall Sally, because he just so totally nails it, you know? It's like not that. Paul's fault, it is our fault as audience members, but mm. <laughs> we don't live in a vacuum, you know? Yeah, that's the problem with doing good work, is that everyone just immediately expects it all to be that good you oh, know? no no i mean you, you, the way you want to do it you want to do a bad album first and then only get better <laughs> yeah just gradually improve yeah definitely yeah it's true though isn't it i mean with the again with the beat with the beatles they, they were just the press were just desperate to knock them and when you know magical mystery tour came around they had their chance no but no, but there's nothing worse than, than when a band whose discography you're enjoying suddenly goes downhill. It happened for me with Talking Heads. Their last two albums can suck a dick. Muse, Foo Fighters. I'm just like, oh, God. You know, 
is no one safe anymore? All of my favourite film franchises have already been ground into the dirt now. And I mean, the fact that Egypt Station and McCartney 3 weren't terrible is, is it, it's like the only lifeline I've got at the moment. <laughs> Since it's been a month now, actually, while we're here, where, where's McCartney 3 sitting for you now? In the in the Macca canon. Well, it's sitting at the top of my Spotify most played list still, I can tell you that. Mm. Uh, it's really good. It is better than Egypt Station. I've I've come to that real that realization. Not on my own, everyone else has fucking said it. But <laughs> yeah, it's it's shockingly good. It mm. really is. I'm so happy with it. I, I I play it on vinyl at least once a day. Not my HMV blue one. That's wrapped up and sealed up in a cellar somewhere. <laughs> Uh, the the rare exclusive black vinyl edition of the album, which might actually be in the minority. I don't think anyone actually bought the standard pressing but me. Songs like Deep Down, Deep Deep Feeling, Kiss of Venus. Yeah, maybe they would have been better on an album 30 years ago, but they're still really good now. I'm, I'm, I'm really mm. happy with it. And Excellent. who knows what John could have done in the last 40 years? You know? Yeah, we had endless speculation on this podcast. That's... Oh, I know. I mean, yeah. I know ragging on that man who assassinated John. Not, not mm. even a You know, I know a lot of people don't even mention his name, and I'm going to do the same. Mm. The fact it really is one of the most unforgivable things in the history of art, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. And God, no wonder he's never going to make parole because they'll because someone yeah. someone will get him. Someone will. I think that's yeah, that's the reason because they think a Beatles fan's gonna pop him off. Good, anyway, let's, good. <laughs> right, let's get back to this. Uh, don't get around much anymore. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. When I was listening to this originally, like a couple of weeks ago when I was first listening, I didn't even know this was a jazz song. This sounds this sounds so much like a rock song, but yep. there's just a couple of different changes. Uh, it doesn't have the traditional uh, three-chord, four-chord changes, but it's really... Had, had anyone done this as a rock song before? Do you know? Not that I know of. I know that Klaus okay. Warman did it in 2008 with Paul on his yeah. um, Sideman Journey album, which is a really good release. Hmm. It is strange, though. You, you, you are right. It's not like um, it's a really difficult, uh, you know, it's not like Take 5 or something like that where like, Paul really had to mm-hmm. break it down and build it back up. It's almost like, oh, is this a jazz song with three chords and a 12-bar blues bass line? Because that's mm. what it sounds like. I'd love to know the process of how he actually broke this one down. Like, yeah, did all the, the musicians just have that instant, like, oh, okay, what are the chords? Oh, okay, Paul, we've got this. Or maybe with this song, there was maybe even ten whole minutes spent talking about it first. 
because yeah. there's, there's definitely more care with this one. It sounds more like a rock song where, say he'd written it, for example, where he decided to put a couple of jazzy chords in there rather than the other way around. You yes. Know? It really does sound like a rock song. Anyway, I'm giving me eight and a half because I think this is really good. I like it. I like this one as well. Uh, I can mm. probably give this one a nine. It's it's mm. very solid. And just that bit at the end where it's like, what bring back mem? Boom. What bring back mem? Anyway, it's, it's such a showman again. Like, he doesn't need mm. a stage to, to uh, do this stuff. And yeah. the fact that he took a Duke Ellington jazz number and created something that that is, you know, the dirty gutter filth art that is rock and roll, and yet does it surprisingly tastefully, which I really appreciate yeah, weirdly enough, I mean, this is not true of the other jazz song, which we'll get to later, but I actually prefer this as a rock song, <laughs> I'll be honest. Mm-hmm. I listened back to the, the jazz one, and that yeah, was all right. Perhaps I got used to this one, of course, but... Oh, but yeah, I mean, have, I like you ever, have, have you ever gone back to Bob Dylan's All Along the Watchtower? It's just not the same, is it? Yeah, I don't know. I've grown to, I've grown to just see them as two separate things, but uh, Dylan, Dylan did start doing it in the Hendrix style, of course, which is really? the ultimate... Yeah. <laughs> if you listen to uh, Before the Flood, really, really good live album with the band. Yeah, it's not exactly the same. I mean, they don't do the solos the same as Hendrix, but... I'm going to yeah, do the child dance. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I'm going to be a wheel someday. One, two, three. Is this Fats Domino again? More Fats Domino. Yeah. I don't think he'd be allowed to be called Fats Domino, I think, uh, in the 21st century. Overweight Domino. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. All bodies are beautiful, Domino. That's what, that, that's <laughs> what he, he'd be called. Oh, political commentary, folks. That's, that's, that's what happens when you get Anthony Reduno on the show. Well, we already talked about communism, didn't we? So. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this for me is the standout track. This is the oh, first song I heard. Obviously, I, I got it on my 12-inch maxi of My Brave Face. Hand, hands down, this is the best one. Like, maybe... Oh, well, this is also the first song from the second day of Sessions, and I, right. I've got this theory that maybe Paul's still a bit rusty getting out this cobwebs on the first day, and now he's come back fresh with a clear understanding of what's going on, and he's prepared for it, and there's just such a raw, unfiltered, joyous energy here that is only compounded by Chris Witten's killer drumming on this one as well. So this is the second band, basically, second yes. day. Is there much, would you say there's much difference in the first and second band, or are they, are they, would you say they're playing it both quite straight? Which Is there a preference you have between them? I like the second day, even though there's only three tracks. Right, right. I just think it's got more more, more, en- more energy to it. And, uh, right just a bit a bit looser as well and there's something about Paul being on the lead guitar 
that just changes the entire dynamic of the, of the two bands. Oh, he's doing, he's the only guitarist, is he? So he's doing solos and stuff. Yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm going to be a wheel cracking up and one of the other ones, he does he does lead, uh, lead guitar, yeah. Uh, okay, okay. Cool. I mean, I mean, you've seen Paul on stage. The moment he switches to, to, to his axe, he's going to play mm. Foxy Lady, he's going to play day tripper and let me roll it and it's the, the moment end. where it, oh yeah and it's just so everyone can stop and look at him and go oh Paul plays guitar as well like he's always more than keen to remind us oh you know I did the lead seat, the uh, lead solo for Taxman but don't tell George <laughs> this is this is one of those moments and there's nothing yeah. complicated about this song it's very simple and earnest it's a rock and roll version of a rock and roll tune 10 out of 10 so you're giving this a 10 wow okay I marked it down not for the performance. I just find the song a bit repetitive. That's all. Just the I'm going to be a wheel someday. But yeah, good performance. I think that's why I like it. Like, I love right, McCartney right. repetition. You, ha- you get a lot of it on Red Rose Speedway. And maybe that's because I've, I've, you know, grown up a lot with like house and dance and trance music and stuff. Mm. And McCartney's always been leaning towards that naturally anyway. And this song could be another eight minutes longer. I wouldn't care. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, something like Hound Dog, they get away with it, because actually Hound Dog is, is just, uh, you ain't nothing but a Hound Dog, da, 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 you ain't never caught a rabbit. That's all it yeah. is. Blue, There's uh, no bridge. Blue suede shoes as well. You yeah, know. blue suede shoes, yeah. I suppose, if you, yeah, if, you're just, if your ear just is very attuned to the song and you like it, then, uh, yeah, you don't mind. I've always had a soft spot mm. for, for, like, shitty 50s rock, though. Like, so many <laughs> of my friends are so snooty about it and like oh you know it's really really simple it's really boring i'm like oh go listen to rush if you want like oh if you know mm. so many of my friends are virtuoso guitar players and right they've, they've got to play something complicated i'm like can't you just in the way that i wish george would just be happy being in the beatles i'm like guys can't you just be happy playing b7 for two minutes <laughs> yeah even get a fourth chord in there sometimes <laughs> if you're come lucky on, come on look Put an augmented fifth in if you want. If you want. <laughs> all right. Um, that's all right. Again, mama. yeah. Yeah, that's all right, Mama. So, yeah, sorry, yeah. That's all right, Mama. In brackets, Mama. <laughs> oh, is it? Right. Yeah, yeah. Kansas City, brackets, hey, 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 kind of thing. So they did this. Uh, they did this at the BBC, of course, live at the BBC mm-hmm. in uh, around '63. Um, you go first. What do you think of this one? Yeah, side two. Um, mm. Already, I'm um, rather like the Lennon episode. Actually, I'm shockingly 
running short on just on positive descriptive language very much like yeah you. i know what you mean i know what you mean it's just because it's so it's just solid isn't it i mean yeah. again i would i'd mark this as an eight purely because mm-hmm. i think the song is so familiar you know there's nothing wrong with the performance at all so it skews yeah. more towards the mediocre side of the album for me the kind of mm-hmm. seven seven point five style but you right. know, it's pulled back in that in that elvis mode and i'm i'm i'm, I'm happy with that Paul does impressions, which I've always appreciated. Yeah. And, you know, as someone who, for better or worse, folks, does a lot of impressions, I love the idea of doing that whilst singing as well, whilst, you know, taking on a real persona. I'm not saying Paul McCartney has to become Sasha Fierce or or anything like that, but, um, you know, like, again, this isn't a very experimental one, but that raw, spontaneous musicianship is just blowing everything... Spectre could have gathered together with his 50 musicians mm-hmm. out of the water. Yeah. Yeah, talk, talking about like channeling people, like Lady Madonna, I think, is, is the ultimate. Because that vocal, I've never heard Paul sound like that again. That's what, Lady Madonna. Yeah, it's a yeah, bit. Um, he's tried to do it for women and wives and it didn't work at all. Right, right, that, right. That kind <laughs> of lead belly, deep, back of the, back of the throat, Paul. Mm. Um, I mean, that would have been really good on this album as well for, for something like Ain't, Ain't That A Shame. I'm going really, you may make right. Something, something like that. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah, uh, when we just, uh, on Glass Onion, we just did this three-parter about John Lennon and Elvis. We were talking about how the Beatles never actually had an Elvis song recorded, you know, in the EMI um, oh, catalog. Yeah. That's yeah, they so did a couple strange. Of, you see? Yeah, and perhaps, I don't know whether... Someone like Elvis, if you do cover one of his songs that's so synonymous with him, perhaps, you know, you're less likely to compare favourably. That could be a reason. Oh, no, I mean, doing the research for this episode, you'll look at all the songwriters on like, the Wikipedia article or Paul McCartney Project, and you're like, mm. oh, okay, I'm guessing these are the people who sung it. No, 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 no. Back, back in the 50s, you just had Tin Pan Alley st- stables of rock and roll songwriters, and almost, right. almost every time it's, oh, Elvis, Fats Domino, Little Richard, uh, Bo Diddley, everyone yeah. covered covered this song. And like when you like when you go on YouTube and just look up look at all all this stuff, it's like everyone covered everyone. It seems like between 1920 mm-hmm. and 1961, there was only about eight songs going around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And they'd have they'd have them in the charts around the same time as well. Yeah, I multiple, think Elvis and Jerry versions of the same yeah. song in the chart at the same time. That is Weird, insane. Well, I think the Beatles are one of the ones that sort of up, up the game in that respect of ha- having to be a bit more original. Because, you know, they talked about, you know, the Supremes are bringing out a record, Baby Love or whatever. And then the next four or five singles are sort of variations of Baby Love, you know. <laughs> I think the Beatles sort of established this thing where they wouldn't let themselves get away with that. That's so, so, that's I think, so I'm, sure, I'm, I'm sure it wasn't just them single-handedly. I'm sure there were others, but... Um, just a, a little digression about, about Elvis. Mm. Two, two little questions. Yep. Number one is the quote without the beat without Elvis there'd be no Beatles. Is that a quote from any of them? Without is that a quote from the Beatles? I've heard that that's a Lennon quote. Uh, possibly, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's been verified. Could be along the lines of uh, a teacher asked me at school what I wanted to be, and I said <laughs> I want to be happy. You, <laughs> don't, you, you don't understand life, and we life's what's happening about, when you're making other plans. And that we were talking about these uh, last show we just did about all these spiritual quotes of John Lennon. But mm. Some mean, are verified, some aren't. The only quote yeah. I know John Lennon did say is, "How do you sleep, you cunt?" <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
that you know that's not on a t-shirt is it no. uh, or, so second Elvis question oh go on have they determined whether Elvis stood up or sat down when the Beatles met them yeah <laughs> I don't know probably stood up to say hi and then sat down and uh, watched TV <laughs> I think they were mostly they did jam with him though I think that's fairly well verified and this book I read came up with a brilliant uh, name, Sergeant Presley's Lonesome Heartbreak Band. Oh, my God. <laughs> Which is absolute gold, yeah. Great name. They must yeah, have, I think they did jam. They yeah. must have loved the 68 comeback, comeback special as well. Well, that was the thing, yeah. We, when we did the Elvis show, we were saying, there's no quotes ever. Like, we've never heard any of them talk about it. Sure, they would have absolutely loved it. We, yeah. we, was, we was too busy making the White Album, you know? Yeah, yeah. But that's my favourite Elvis, by the way, yeah. Oh, yeah. I like I love the early Elvis. Could that, you imagine it, if Brian Epstein made all four Beatles go into the military for ten years, making five shitty movies a month? It like he, he shorted the stock on on uh, Elvis Presley, you know. Or if they'd gone back to leather as well, that would have been pretty cool. The Beatles, the Beatles gone back to leather for a year or something. Oh, Elvis looked so good right. in, in that in that black leather. Does does he it? did? Yeah. Oh yeah, my yeah. god. All right, um, where are we? Ain't that a shame that Elvis never stayed with us, say, eh? you know? Yes. <laughs> Speaking of. Lots of shames in rock and roll, unfortunately. We and lost the... a lot of people. Oof. And, mm. it's, and it's only going to get worse with these leg- legacy artists, you know? <laughs> yep. All right, summertime. It's summertime. And living is easy. Yeah, again, good performance. I think the weight of this song, I think there are versions I prefer. That's all I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. I'm still giving it an eight. It's perfectly good. Um, just a slight aside in terms of jazz. Am I right in thinking that Kisses on the Bottom is not actually that well regarded? Because I absolutely love that. Really? I, so I always I, loved that. I've only heard My Valentine because I'm trying to keep it faithful and chronological. Obviously... Paul McPaul has played My Valentine loads. I I do I, I do still feel guilty that I went to the toilet during My Valentine when I saw him, and then <laughs> and then I later read that he's very aware that people go to the toilet during My My Valentine. I'm like, oh god, what if I bumped into Nancy in the stalls or something? <laughs> <laughs> so you haven't heard that album? Oh, because no. on your show you said you were listening. You're faithfully listening to each one in order. Is that right? More or less. I mean, I've listened to a mm. little bit of new, but that was by accident. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, going back to summer to summertime though. Yeah, isn't cool. it just isn't it just great that you know McCartney and Lennon have always been compared to the Gershwins, and now Paul yeah. is paying is paying tribute to that. It's probably another sly little Beatles reference on the on this album. This was also the other track that was left off the original pressings. So there are a right. hundred thousand people in the Soviet Union that had been shortchanged. 
Though this this isn't up there with I'm going to be a wheel someday. Uh, I'll probably give it seven point five. Mm. I think it's one of the the less successful jazzy jazz to rock conversion kits that McCartney's put up here. Yeah, just in comparison with the, the other one, don't get around much anymore. Yeah, mm. so. It's also a dead ringer, and this might be a bit of paradolia on my part, but it sounds so much like That Day Is Done, the Elvis Costello collaboration from Flowers in the Dirt. Like, they sound so similar. I don't know uh, what, right. I, don't know, I don't know if that's a coincidence or if McCartney, like, remembered that sound. But yeah, folks, go and, uh, go and check that one out. Yeah, and uh, I'm looking forward to listening to Kisses on the Bottom, actually, because I, I think it's really good. I think the voice is excellent, and there's a good performance of it as well. He's got Abe and... I don't know if Rusty's on there. He's got definitely got some of the band. Wix, of course. Can't not have Wix on anything oh, now. Because he's so good. Yeah. He wasn't around now at this point, right? When he was No, um Wix Wix joins for the Flowers in the Dirt session, so we're oh, literally okay. months away from the real, you know, unsung hero of the of the McCartney story, really. I think Wix yeah. has been with Paul longer than Linda was. Wow. Yeah, his longest yeah, that's right. Yeah, his longest collaborator for sure. Yeah, and yep. he mentions him probably once every five years, and I reckon that's entirely down to Wix's preference. He he doesn't want to want to be in, in in the spotlight at all. My my dad did some joinery work for Wix's brother about five years ago, and uh, my dad actually got Wix's brother to email him and ask if I if I could in, interview him, and like he just said, we all have very strict non-disclosure agreements about Paul. And I was like. Of course. Oh, is that right? Of course. He does, oh, you were yeah. trying to interview Wix. Yeah. Oh, like, right. Come on, right. Wix. How much coke did you and Paul do in '89? Come on. <laughs> yeah. Somehow you're not gonna. Yeah. yeah somehow you're not gonna get. Oh no. My my dream <laughs> is to sign a non-disclosure agreement with Paul, shake his hand, look him in the eye, and promise that I won't say anything and just go to dinner with him. Yeah. That's just say so I, I won't mention like the hair dye or anything. Like, Never. Like, like, you know, Paul. Did you enjoy? making Denny Lane sell Mull of Kintyre for 100 quid. That must have felt good, yeah? Oh, dear. <laughs> like, I, I just want to ask him all the mean questions, basically, all the mean-spirited stuff. Yeah. You can always email him. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, did, did you fucking write yesterday, mate? No, you didn't. You know, I want to hear those stories. <laughs> well, you can read some Jeffrey Giuliano books if you want that. Yeah. I mean, Paul, um, huh? Paul, did you ever see John with a... in, in Germany? Well... Funny you should mention that, Sam. Yeah. <laughs> that 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 is in Jeff. Why don't you interview Stevie Ricks in character? That'd be good. Yeah. No, just I, be me. One of the worst ideas I had was I was going to interview Paul McCartney as myself, and it's like, oh, right. oh no, like that is that is a narcissist like fly trap. That is, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Sam. I just think you're you're the best podcast out there. I never really listened to yeah. Two Legs. <laughs> all right moving on um oh here we go ain't that a shame i'm gonna just whisper my note prefer jl <gasps> and then i'm gonna you've to made you. me cry i've made you cry yeah absolutely you made me cry when you said Although 
love the piano solo in this. Yes, Mick, I do like Mick Gallagher smashes it here. Yeah, I like I like both of them. I I might even say that they're equal. I think I, I just love the John vocal on this, but I like the poor one as well. So yeah, you take it. The you John vocal it. is very is very different. It's much more nasally, and and his notes mm. uh, are, are much longer. Like it's exactly what I would have wanted from John in his version, and Paul's here is exactly what I would have wanted from Paul. I'd love to hear someone get them down to the same beats per minute, maybe. Mm. Try and get them to do a duet or something. That that would be really fun. I mean, that that's the thing. In, in our sort of uh, parallel universe where John Lennon was still around, I think if they'd made this album together, I think we can agree on that, right? Oh, uh, How awesome would that be? Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Because I mean, you'd get those harmonies. Why didn't they do it when they were coked out of their mind on, you know... A two, a two, and a snort. They, they could have bashed that out. Steve, Steve, he would have done it on keys, you know. Mm. Well, no, I wasn't meaning this. This song particularly. I mean, the whole album. Oh, to be yeah, honest. yeah, yeah. Yeah, this would have been awesome. And if it was their first proper collaboration in, like, say, if they release it in '84, some something like that, mm. and it's like, wow, this is their first you know, project in 15, 16 years. Straight to number one. Mm. For four weeks, there would have been a huge single off it, off it as well. Something akin to the success of "Stand by Me." Not sure what it would have been, but yeah, I mean, I mean, the the charts always bring back these these old rock rockers in like the eighties and nineties. So it's 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 definitely not not that out there. Back mm. to back to "Ain't That a Shame" though. Mm. The superior one for me is actually from "Tripping the Live Fantastic." Mm. Mostly oh, just I haven't heard that it, for a long time. Oh, yeah. it, it's got this great little uh, intro where Paul's like, A long time ago, I was in New Orleans. I met Fats Domino. And he said to me, and then he just goes straight into the song. It's like, it's the, it, it's, it's the cheesiest little setup ever, but McCartney's oh, vocals yeah. just ridiculous. He says, like, I've got something to tell you or something, isn't it? I've got, got something to tell you. Yeah. And I said, what is it? And he said, you, you made... Bang, bang. <laughs> Again... Ever, ever the showman I would have lost it if, I, if I'd have been there um, we also get some really weird uh, production elements this, there's actual production on this song you know it'd be the hey, you're the one to blame the one to blame or the oh whoa whoa at the end and like since it is such a powerhouse vocal from Paul the fact that he, he you know, Paul's just the king of these little inconsequential flourishes that really make or break a song for me and just the fact yeah. that he added something a little bit a little bit silly into this horse out the barn performance. Like this is crazy. And Mick Gallagher, the way he smashes the keys, the the, the way he just rolls. Yeah, it I've, the I've got a note that. Yeah, I love that piano solo. Yeah, oh, it's piano, isn't it? On the subject of cheesy uh, uh, segues, yeah. Do you remember in the anthology when Paul's doing Twenty Fight Rock on acoustic, like for the anthology, and he goes. I called her up on the telephone and said, and then they cut to John Lennon, a quote, do you want to join the group? Oh, <laughs> God. So I cheesy. don't remember that. I ought yeah. to. My, my, my musical knowledge of that is when, uh, oh, is it, is it Blue Moon of Kentucky? And George is like, let's yeah, just do, do a quick short, one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's do the short version. There'd be some brilliant analysis of like the body George, language. George, you are being Scott. paid. You are being paid very good money, George Harrison, to be there. Yeah. I have to smile when I serve pissheads at my pub. Put on a smile, you dickhead. I like it when he meets Paul and says, Paul's wearing a leather jacket. Is that a vegetarian leather jacket? <laughs> <laughs> Do 
George is just George is just looks so sort of he's so passive aggressive all through the George episode. is the kind of guy who sits in the car on the way home going, Oh, I should have said that. Yeah. Oh, I should have said that. Yeah, no, yeah. I shouldn't have said that, yeah. Oh, right, you know right. I should have I should have told Paul where to stick it with his solo, but I didn't at the time. So in the car on the way back, he thinks of a one-liner he could have come up with yeah. at the time. But, well, actually, no, that can't be true, because he came up with the sod line What's on, that? on the spot, where uh, he's being interviewed by Ken Dodd in, like, 64. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. like, I want a really earthy name. And then George goes, how about sod? Yeah, the sods, yeah. <laughs> That's fucking great. <laughs> All right, okay, cracking up. Yeah, yeah. some bvs going on here what do you think of this one i think this is the most obscure song on the album because there is mm. not an accompanying wikipedia article for this song so this has to be a bit of a deep cut for paul but i'm not surprised there is a definite i'm not going to say feel but there is an undercurrent a subversive layer of caribbean reggae i was, I was just going to say that yeah, yeah. I, I feel like this probably that, was a yeah. reggae song um, um, the, the, the original version, which, again, this shows my lack of knowledge. I was like, oh, who's Ellis McDaniel? Oh, it's Bo Diddley. No, it's Bo Diddley. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And Bo Diddley, for me, you know, it's something that you put in a Martin Scorsese movie. It's always... Mm. But then, no, it's it's a proper Caribbean seaside woman mm. kind of track. And I'm like, oh, okay. I totally get why Paul's gone for this one. And then he just puts this sunshine guitar tone that beautiful guitar sound that comes on mm. top this is paul again on lead guitar this is a real 10 out of 10 one for me i love cracking up yeah Ooh, i went eight and a half but yeah fine I'll go with that yeah you know the um, the haze and the huzz at the end like you're going like that mm. to me that was like david byrne mm. from like, right. a, like and she was proper like uh speaking in tongues moment yeah. There's a really funny bit in, in the liner notes, though. I think Derek Taylor struck again. Um, it says, A fact often forgotten in the foremost is that Paul McCartney is a guitarist, only switching to bass when the late Stuart Sutcliffe resigned, thus making the Beatles a fab foursome. So, for the July 21st session held in Paul's private recording studio, McCartney took over the role of guitarist. Check out his work on Cracking Up, in brackets. In the hands of McCartney and his musicians, this obscure B-side is transformed from underground status to a major league performance. Oh, I'm so glad albums do not have these kind of self-aggrandizing liner notes anymore. Do we know who wrote that? Who wrote that? I think it was Roy Carr. Someone paid very well and threatened with a sack if it wasn't flowery yeah. enough. <laughs> 
Well, those, yeah, put those flowers in the dirt, you know. Yeah. <laughs> no, this is good because, yeah, it's got the reggae feel, but he's not trying to do, I don't know, quote-unquote white reggae or anything. Because John Lennon did a bit of that on The Milk and Honey. I mean, I'm not sure if had he lived, those versions would have come out, but he starts doing this really embarrassing white reggae, so... It can't yeah. be more embarrassing than George's addiction to the slide guitar. We don't like George's slide. Oof. Um, Does it get too much after a while? Look, I love Give Me Love, Give Me Give Me Peace on Earth, but mm. it's very Adele. Like, I love Adele. Couldn't listen, couldn't listen to a whole album of Adele. Couldn't, I, couldn't, <laughs> I, I couldn't see her live. Did George use that slide a lot then? Like, all the time? Because I don't know his solo stuff that well. Well, you can see during the Get Back sessions, he gets a whammy pedal and he, oh, gets, that wawa, yeah. Yeah, and he gets a slide guitar um, ring yeah. as well. And it's like, George, just play with your new toys at home. It's time. <laughs> it's, it's, it's time. I'm ripping on George so much this episode. This is this is why the, there is a George Harrison podcast. <laughs> yeah, no one's no one's stepped in there, have they? Come on, listeners. There's someone out there. You've got the floor to yourself. We've always joked, Just haven't we, I have. about, the, about the lack of a Ringo podcast. But if mm. someone had the cojones to do a Ringo podcast, I think every Beatles podcaster would just be so impressed by their bravery that they'd be like, right, sod it, I'll review Biku of Blues with you. Let's do it. Well, there's a gap, though, there, you know? I mean, George Harrison, for God's sake, there's loads of albums. That's inexcusable. There's someone not... has just got to step in the gap. I want someone listening to this. Fill that gap. What do we call just... it? Uh, podding in the material world. Dark horse. <laughs> Dark horse, yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, you want to think of a pod pun? Well, you're the yeah. king of the puns. No, well, it's got to be like, it's, it's got to be something to do with God, hasn't it? Um, yeah, pod. Oh, there you go, pod and God. Yeah. Think of a song that's got God, God in the in title. It. I mean, I mean, um, another John Lennon one would be Pod is a Concept. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but yeah, uh, can't think. it's ten, 10 out of 10 for cracking up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm going at, what did I say, eight and a half, yeah. No, perfect, yeah, it's good. Um, uh, did we give uh, Ain't That a Shame one? I'm going to give that a ten as well, just in case. Yeah. A retroactive ten. <laughs> I think I gave that eight and a half again. God, I'm so repetitive. All right, just because. Yeah, I'm giving this one a nine. Well, 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 just because you think you're so pretty And just because your mama thinks you're hot Just because you think you got something Again, I think this this one compares very favourably with Elvis because this is not one that is totally is totally sort of synonymous with Elvis. So, no. yeah, I just really like this. I like the chord the chord sequence is a bit different than the standard changes as well. So, it's a fun Elvis think? song. It, I love mm. the Elvis the Elvis original. Why has Paul chosen a song called Just Because when he knows he knows that Lennon on Rock and Roll 
yeah. did a song called Just Because. <laughs> it's, yeah. got, it's got to be a reference or an Easter egg or a goof just to kind of mess with us. It has to be. I like this just because it's got that fast kind of bounciness. Mm. I guess that I'm going to be a wheels a bit like that. Yeah, as well. um, for me, this mm. is this kind of like the rip it up ready teddy of this album, mm. but it's mm. much softer. It's much more blues grass than the, than the rest of the album, which I kind of yeah. appreciated. Like, if someone said, "Oh, Clapton was on that song," I wouldn't be all that surprised. <laughs> yeah, it is just Paul doing the Elvis shtick again. What more do you want? And also Mick Gallagher again. The piano is mental on this one. Yeah, is that the first band or the second band? Uh, Mick Gallagher was uh, was in both of them annoying, annoyingly. Uh, okay. Um, so that that's the Ian Jury's keyboard player, right? Uh, he also played rhythm stick as well. Yeah, of course this, he played this rhythm. Is, stick. Yeah, this this is the first day's band. So uh, Mick Green on guitar, oh. and Chris uh, Chris Wynn on drums. Okay. Is this uh, is this one of the ones that wasn't on the original album? Is that right? I got that right. Yeah, uh, no. So the ones that were left off the original were "I'm Gonna Be a Wheel Someday." Summertime and I'm in love. So this one's always been on. Uh, it's always been the penultimate song. Oh, you're right. You're right. Which only compounds the Lennon confusion because Lennon's just because ends the album. That's right. And it's well, much better. Well, I was going to say that um, I thought when I was listening to this again today, I thought this would have been a good closer, and that would have had a brilliant symmetry because John oh. Lennon closed his album, but it's not the same song. But I would have. I feel like we'll get to the the last song in a second but I feel the last song's a bit of a letdown like yeah that's what I was going to say anti-climax but yeah especially since mm. Lennon's Just Because is one of the best climaxes to an album I've heard in a while just in terms of the raw emotion mm. it manages to I mean yeah it's saccharine and it's silly and mm. it's tugging at the heartstrings very intentionally but you can't have a man who was taken from us far too early 40 years in the past saying I think this came out when I was 13 years old, or was it 14? Like, oh, I am getting teary already. Whereas Paul, what does Paul give us? He gives us Midnight Special. song it's a traditional american folk song from hundreds of years ago probably yeah. you know dating back to very troublesome times in the states i'm sure mm. this is an awful album closer it's like it's i'm sure in paul's mind it was like you know i'm gonna give them a nice easy palate cleanser you know mm. to, to kind of bring you down from you know the kind of intensity of the rest of the album but i feel like 
and I've been guilty of this too, Anthony, maybe you have in reviewing mm. albums, there's this idea that, oh, well, it's good within the context of the full album. If you listen to the whole album from start to finish, it's good. And there are loads of songs where I've said that and I've let them off. I've given them the benefit of the doubt. I can't, mm. I can't do that with this one. I would never <laughs> listen to this on its own, ever. And it's never going to appear in any of my like McCartney playlists. It's just not. Yeah, I mean, you can't. The thing is, the way that people listen to stuff now has changed so much that I have to. I make myself listen to whole albums because it's so easy. Now it's so easy to skip. Yeah. So you can't really get away with that. Oh, this sounds good in its own context. It's got to exist as its own song. If you know what I mean. But yeah, I've got a couple of comments. I think there'd be better versions. Like Creedence did a great version. I I had an obscure. It was one of those CDs that came free with a newspaper or something that had lead belly. <laughs> No, it was, yeah, maybe. No, but I think it was actually a newspaper. It was like, it was like the Daily Express or something. And um, they had uh, Lead Belly doing an a cappella version of this, which is not the actual go-to version with Lead Belly. With like just this couple of guys with the Midnight Special, these really amazing, sounding a bit like the deep voice. You were talking about the Ink Spots in the other show we did. Mm. That, that bass voice that sort of talks, mm. talks the melody in the middle. You know, kind of baby, bit, the Midnight Special. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, I think they've been better versions. So, yeah, not the greatest album closer, but, yeah, it's still pretty decent. Hey, if the Ink Spots did this and they opened it with... I mean, I've been doing a Paul McCartney podcast for five years now, and this is the first time, shocking, that I've ever said this. I'd oh. rather hear Tom Waits do this one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Has he done it? Or? No, but it's, it's, right, it's right up his alley, isn't it? Classic Ameri- yeah. uh, American t- t- traditional. In the midnight special, Shadalalo Like, oh, I absolutely love that. In the, uh, in, in the liner notes, uh, they say about this one, Paul's easy action version retains elements of the original blues roots by way of his nimble acoustic guitar finger picking. I don't even remember the acoustic guitar on this song, if I'm completely honest. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, for me, yeah. five. Five out of ten. Yeah. Um, I think the lowest I went was eight, so it's <laughs> eight. Seven and a half. Give seven it a six, a, Anthony. Give it seven a six. and a quarter. All right, Sold. I'll go seven. I'll go seven. <laughs> Sold. Sold to the man in the, in the yellow Paul McCartney hat. <laughs> All right, so overall, I mean, overall score, I'm just, yeah, I'm going to say eight or eight and a half. And even though I have a John Lennon podcast, I'm going to say this has the edge over rock and roll because it's just, rock and roll is a bit too messy and a bit too muddy and too many musicians. This is lean, tight, could have done, ah, yeah, sorry, one more thing on Midnight Special. This could have just totally was crying out for the harmonies on the chorus. Yeah. I know everybody's done it like that, but it's just so ripe for a harmony. So I'd say just if, if this had had, if this album had had harmonies, particularly if they'd been by John Lennon, if he'd been around, I think it would have pushed it up to a nine, but I'll go eight or eight and a half. So. Yeah, again, the argument of this X or solo Beatle project would be better if this Beatle were involved um, is something that has been kind of discussed with all of their work. And you can mm. think that I try to stay away from that kind of thinking because it just depresses me. Because, uh, mm. I mean, yes, of course, living in the material world and Goodnight Vienna and uh, Men Love Avenue would have been better if those were Beatles albums. But mm. I like the imperfections of all of their solo careers. And this yeah. album certainly fits into that. But this isn't like Thrillington or something like that, where 
everyone's just going to call it throwaway. There is real artistic merit to this album. I feel like it's a mm. definite part of the canon. It's a hidden McCartney gem that is buried under the wider discography. And I don't feel like Spotify on YouTube are going to be recommending this album to McCartney fans. It's going to be band mm. on the run, band on the run, well, maybe Ram, you know? If I can just interject, I think maybe rather than comparing this to the originals, how does this compare with uh, Run, Devil, Run? That's maybe that's a pertinent question. What would you say? It'll have to be one that, I, that I'll have to answer in the future. I'll have to get back to with that one. Ah, because uh, you're getting... Ah, OK, yeah. you're getting to it, yeah. Have you heard No Other Baby, though? That was the single from Run, Devil, Run. I think, no, I think the only other song I've heard from that is the remake of Baby's Request, because I had to listen to that for the... Uh, the back to the oh, end yeah. episode. That's quite a favourite. That's oh. a favourite song, actually. Yeah, I love oh, that. yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's it, it's a it's it's the only one where I was like um, to my virtuoso guitarist friends. I was like, oh no no, this is one that Lawrence Juba played, and he and 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 he's a technical guitarist mm-hmm. like you. You'll like this one, but then they don't like the vocals. I'm like, oh, I'm never I'm never gonna win. <laughs> <laughs> Comparing it to rock and roll, though, that that is the big one. His manager, mm. Richard Ogden, warned him about this from the get-go. I knew going in that I was probably always going to rank Chubber higher than rock and roll, but mm. at the end now, I've realised that uh, Chubber's probably slightly lower on average in my estimations than I might have consciously realised, especially in my final scorings for some of these songs. And mm. rock and roll is definitely not the turkey that I've been led to believe it was. Maybe I tricked myself to believe that, but they're mm. both incredibly solid albums. They are a fantastic duo. Like, listen, listening to these two albums back to back is a fantastic time. And Yeah, rock out. Oh, yeah, like, just, just <laughs> the fact that Lennon and McCartney both did a Back to Basics rock and roll album each that were over a decade apart, not only is it just really cool conceptually, but it's just... Mm. Oh, I'm really glad that all of this music had been recorded when it was. Like, if McCartney had put out this album now or in the mid-90s, I think it would have been a bit too late. But 87, 88, he can just about still do that Little Richard Howell, the the, uh, the Elvis yeah. slur. And not only is Paul firing on all cylinders here, but he's just got two of the best backing bands ever. Yeah, Perfect. Um, what, what would you give this overall then, if you had to give it a score? Is it going to yeah, be? Yeah, I think I said. Yeah, I think I said eight or eight and a half. I seem to be. Cha- yeah. I'm channeling Fellini today. <laughs> Everything's hey. bloody eight and a half. There um, you go. So um, yeah, this this very solid album. You wouldn't have to. You wouldn't have to dream to give this a number nine. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I'll give it an eight as well. I'll I'll give it an eight as well. Okay. So how far have you got in his canon, like in terms of listening? I'm still listening yeah, to but... Biker Like an Icon and all of that stuff from off the ground at the moment. Uh, uh-huh. I've got several emails from people harassing me saying, when are you going to review off the ground? And I'm like, well, I've got to, I've got to review like eight little documentaries first. I'm just, <laughs> I'm, I'm just delaying it as long, as long as possible. But off the ground is nowhere near as bad, rather like rock and roll that, as everyone is making out. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that one. All right, fab. All right, we've made it. Woo! <laughs> so I hope you enjoyed it, your audience, my audience. And, um, yeah, who knows what we'll do in the future. Awesome, man. It's, it's good because everything we've done so far has been a kind of Lennon-McCartney thing because we did Tootin' a Snob ostensibly, but it was a – I called it Lennon-McCartney perspectives. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> First yeah, one yeah. we did. 
No, right. um, this fortunately Lennon McCartney were a duo, so it, it's not going to take too much effort for us to uh, come up with some other context for us to talk in, into it into our microphones. But yeah, there man, you go. Thanks for uh, well, no, I'm not thanking you for coming on. You're thanking me for coming on. So uh, yeah, I don't know. Thank, I don't know who's having me on. <laughs> no, I don't know whose show we're on. Like, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, let's we'll, we'll, say where we can yeah. find our shows as well. So, go on, you go first. Uh, links will all be down below, folks. But check out at McCartney Pod on Twitter and Paul McCartney Pod at gmail.com. Check us out on Podbean and all of that stuff. Check out the blog. Like I say, links will all be down below. I would have done my own housekeeping segment and bored everyone to death with these uh, stats, okay. stats anyway, so I won't keep them any longer. All right, for your audience, so Glass Onion on John Lennon and then at Onion Lennon Twitter. And podcasts in all the usual places. And of course, folks, go and ch- these ep- these episodes are going to be on both of our feeds. So, mm. and you never know. I'm not promising anything, but they might have slightly different edits. Each one might have stuff that's not featured in the other one. So, mm. rather like Paul and all these different editions, the only way to know if you have heard everything from me and Anthony is to go and download <laughs> both of our podcasts. Listen to them both. Oh man, yeah, you got to you got to devote a whole day. Like, if you're not working, then you could do like four hours, and then start the start twice. start a Wikipedia page and list and list the differences. <laughs> at thirteen oh seven, Sam coughs on yeah. his one, but he doesn't cough on Anthony's. And record a director's commentary. Yes, <laughs> oh, or a God. fan listener's commentary in this case. That would be. I mean, I've already spoken about narcissism, but doing a commentary <laughs> of one of my own podcasts that that would take the cake. So I remember. <laughs> I remember doing research for this episode. It was a hot. Yeah. It was a hot summer in May. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This was actually recorded at uh, during the day, even though it looks like it was at night. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds like at night. Yeah, I just had a nap. People yeah. seem to think the show was always called Paul or Nothing, but originally it was called Nothing But Paul. Yeah, or Paul Bearer. That was one of your... Oh, oh God, no. Good fan. Like, in the, I was originally going to call the fans Paul Bearers, but I'm like... Yeah. <laughs> you know how like Lady Gaga calls her fans Little Monsters? I'm like, I can't do it, I can't. <laughs> Paul Bearers. That's good. And uh, Sailor Sam from Birmingham as well. Yeah. And not to put any pressure on you, but you should, uh, you should get your Only Fools and Horses podcast... You're not the only person who's saying that, Anthony. Oh, it's great. I listened to the first, was it four Four. episodes you did? Yeah, brilliant. And it's even better when you listen to the only other Only Fools podcast that exists. Oh, fucking dreadful. Fucking dreadful. If you can only spend 10 minutes on Chain Gang, then you're not a fan of Only Fools and Horses. So what they did, yeah. Good God. All right. Yeah, thanks for doing this, and thanks for having the idea as well, and thanks to everyone for listening been a pleasure man thank you for coming on thank me for coming on as well i guess yeah uh, <laughs> I, yeah i forgot to thank myself for coming on your show as well give yourself a pat a, a pat on the back dude you, you, will, are, yeah. you deserve this uh yeah All right. thanks for doing this as well this has been really fun take care everyone i'm sure denny lane's already been playing us out in a, in a bit peace and love all right all the best folks Traveling over miles, even through the valleys too.
I've been traveling in day. I've been running all the way. Baby, trying to get to you. Ever since I read your letter, where you said you love me true. I've been traveling night and day. I've been running all the way. Baby, trying to get to you. Traveling night and day, I kept running all the way, baby, trying to get to you. Shine as bright as light When I was trying to get to you 